0: Russia's state-run gas company cuts deliveries to Poland and Bulgaria as it tries to ramp up pressure on the West over sanctions. It's Wednesday, April 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. In for Lisa Mullins coming up, the move by Gazprom and how Poland and Bulgaria are responding. Also this hour, how Brazil's COVID vaccination rate has improved in a big way.
1: 76% of Brazilians are fully vaccinated. Among Brazilians age five or older, it's 85%.
0: And Texas families with trans kids move out of the state as the government there says gender-affirming care for trans kids amounts to child abuse. It's 4.01. First, this hour's news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. U.S. political figures and world leaders gathered at the Washington National Cathedral today to pay tribute to Madeleine Albright, who died of cancer last month at the age of 84. President Biden praised her as a champion of democracy.
3: There are always those who will fight for that freedom. In the 20th and 21st century, freedom had no greater champion than Madeleine Corbett Albright.
2: Albright was the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State, picked by President Clinton in 1996. She was born in Czechoslovakia. Her family fled the Nazis during World War II— and eventually settled in the United States, where she rose to be top diplomat. The U.S. and Russia have negotiated a prisoner swap, but U.S. officials say the talks were only about that one discreet issue. American Trevor Reed, a former Marine, has been released from prison and is on his way home. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. According to U.S. officials,
4: Trevor Reed was in good spirits when he was released from custody in Russia. He was serving a nine-year prison term for allegedly attacking two policemen back in 2019. But the U.S. considered him a hostage. For its part, the U.S. commuted the sentence of a Russian pilot who served more than half of his 20-year sentence on drug smuggling charges. U.S. officials say this took months and months of hard and careful work and negotiations didn't go beyond the discrete issue of prisoner releases. Russia is still holding at least two Americans, Paul Whelan and professional basketball player Brittany Griner. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
2: White House science advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci says the United States is out of the pandemic phase of the coronavirus outbreak. NPR's Rob Stein has the story.
5: Fauci told the PBS NewsHour that the U.S. has transitioned out of the pandemic phase because the number of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths have plummeted.
6: We don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands
7: of deaths. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are.
5: But Fauci stressed that this doesn't mean the virus is going away or people should stop taking precautions. And, he added, other parts of the world clearly are still fighting a pandemic. Rob Stein, NPR News.
2: On Wall Street, just before the close, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 62 points. The S&P was up eight points. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. There is a departure from Governor Charlie Baker's administration today. The state's Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary says she will be leaving at the end of next week. Kathleen Herides has been with the Baker administration since 2016. Her work oversees environmental protection, public utilities and fish and game and has focused on how the state can respond to climate change. Leaders of three Massachusetts police unions are filing a legal complaint against the state commission charged with certifying police officers. The complaint says the peace officers standards and training or post commission is violating the state's open meeting law. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports.
8: The complaint says the Commission created subcommittees that illegally did much of their work without public input or observation. It asked the Court to nullify any action taken that was based on work from those subcommittees. It also asked the Court to order the Commission to provide records of subcommittee meetings and ensure compliance with the open meeting law. The Commission issued a statement saying it's reviewing the complaint and believes it has complied with the law. For 90.9 WBU are. I'm Deborah Becker.
0: Boston police are investigating a murder near a school in Roxbury. Investigators say an adult male was found shot to death around 1140 this morning across the street from Trotter Elementary School. Police say no one was let in or out of the school during the investigation. A state representative from Worcester he is facing drunk driving charges. State police say 32-year-old David LaBeouf was arrested in Quincy last night after drivers reported a black SUV operating erratically. Police say he failed field sobriety tests and had a blood alcohol level about four times the legal limit. The arrest happened about 90 minutes after the House wrapped up debate for the night on the state budget. He's due back in court in June. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy to start tonight, then clearing with lows down in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, all sunshine and a few degrees cooler with highs in the low to mid 50s. Right now, 54 degrees in Boston.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. At Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE, comparison rates not available in all states or situations.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Rob Schmitz. Much of Europe's natural gas comes from fields in Siberia, traveling thousands of miles across Russia in pipelines. But now, Russia's state-run gas company, Gazprom, has cut supplies to two countries in Eastern Europe, Poland and Bulgaria. At the heart of this move, the war in Ukraine, the sanctions imposed by the West, and Russia's attempts to try and wriggle free of them. We're joined by two correspondents who have been following all of this closely for months now, from Lviv in Ukraine and PR's Joanna Kakissis, and from Moscow and PR's Charles Maines. Welcome to you both. Hi there. Hi, Rob. Uh, Charles, we'll start with you. Why has Gazprom done this?
6: Well, last month, uh, President Vladimir Putin ordered countries deemed unfriendly to Moscow to shift their payments to rubles. Uh, It was payback, really, for the sanctions they've imposed on Russia over its actions in Ukraine. And Gazprom is, in effect, implementing Putin's orders. You know, another issue, though, is what the move to ruble payments actually accomplishes. You know, the median intent seemed to be to pump up the value of the currency, the ruble. Uh, But I spoke with Sergei Pekin from the Energy Development Fund here in Moscow, and he argues the other objective uh, was to protect Gazprom's revenues from Western sanctions. Let's listen in. So the goal, Pekin says, was to ensure payments to Gazprom went to banks under Russian jurisdiction, so the money wouldn't be subject to seizure. Simple as that. Now, now the problem is, these contracts are in euros and dollars, so Pekin says Gazprom worked out a compromise of sorts. You know, Europe can pay in euros to, say, Gazprom's own banks, Gazprom transfers the payments into rubles, and that pleases the Kremlin. But, of course, that only applies to those who decide to play ball, which, of course, Poland and Bulgaria refused.
10: Aha, so let's pivot to Joanna. Why did these countries refuse?
11: Both Poland and Bulgaria don't want to accommodate a country that has started an unprovoked war against a sovereign nation, uh, Ukraine. Um, they are also challenging the Russian stoppage. They say Gazprom can't change the terms of, of, of contracts that were signed years ago. Uh, but both the Polish and Bulgarian governments say they are also prepared to go without Russian fuel. They've assured their citizens that everything will be fine, that the countries have alternative fuel sources, as well as fuel in storage and access to the EU energy market. I spoke about all this with Polish energy analyst, Agata Woskot Strachota. Uh, she says Poland and Bulgaria are sounding the alarm about Gazprom.
12: Unfortunately, Russia will be playing its games with gas supplies to Europe, and we cannot really avoid that. Everyone in Europe is actually preparing for disruption in Russian
11: gas flows. And the key issue here is to stay united. And she says Russia is trying to divide the EU by using energy as a weapon.
10: So, Charles, this has long been a fear that Russia would cut supplies to Europe. But isn't this a risky move on the part of the Russian government?
6: Well, yeah. I mean, keep in mind that throughout the late Soviet period at the height of the Cold War, you know, Europe and Moscow managed to have a pretty good business relationship with gas, uh, despite all the political tensions. And, you know, Putin, when he came to power, essentially followed that pattern. Uh, Not always so convincingly, though, I think, to a lot of people. You know, today's decision it certainly gives ammunition as Joanna's pointing out to these voices in Europe who've long argued that their reliance on Russian oil and gas uh, undermines their security and leaves, you know, EU countries open to Russian blackmail, you know. To them it looks political because it is political. You know, today we heard it from the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov who said that that's not the case. Uh, he says that, you know, essentially for those European countries who are willing to pay in rubles, uh, and there are some who are, seem to indicate that they are willing that it's business as usual this is hmm. essentially nothing's changed um, but of course a lot of Europeans aren't you know blind to the optics of giving putin what he wants um, now the problem is what happens if uh, europe doesn't want to pay gas uh, you know russia says it'll take its gas elsewhere to buyers like china or india but the hard truth is that you can't just redirect these supplies I and mean, they're literally physical pipelines connecting these countries together and moving away from that is going to take time
10: hmm. Joanna, does this mean that the lights are going to go off in Poland and Bulgaria?
11: nope the lights are going to stay on at least for now Uh, (laughs) yes it's spring so you know you don't need to burn uh fuel to keep people warm right uh that's a big plus um and it will be warm for the next few months so there is some breathing room um but in the long term you know bulgaria is in in the more precarious position it's a small country it's not very rich much of its fuel until now came from russia Hmm. Um, bulgaria has some options including importing gas from neighboring countries like turkey or greece greece has already offered actually to to export gas to bulgaria poland meanwhile has been moving for years to cut itself from from russian fuel imports earlier this month the polish government declared that it was phasing out all russian imports by the end of the year Uh, and they're looking to the u.s to qatar and to norway to fill uh, the gap to fill uh to for new fuel resources
10: so joanna it looks like poland is trying to figure things out but eu-wide uh what are the alternatives
11: Well, you know, the the EU has been thinking about life after Gazprom for some time. There's a plan to drastically cut Russian gas imports by 2030. Uh, In the short term, though, you know, LNG, liquefied natural gas, is an option. Those supplies are limited. There's also coal, uh, and, and that's another short term solution because it's very unpopular with environmentalists, and the EU is trying to cut its carbon emissions. And I talked this all over with Julian Popov, who's a former environment minister from Bulgaria, and he sees this crisis as an opportunity opportunity to speed up getting renewable energy sources online, finally, at the EU. Um, And he says that this is going to take a while. So in the meantime, expect pain, because this is a war, an energy war with Moscow, and that the EU must accept that.
10: Aha, so expect pain. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis and Charles Maines. Thanks to you both. Thank you.
9: Thanks for having us, Rob. Okay, staying with developments from Russia, let's turn to this one. Today, at an airport in Turkey, a Russian plane pulled up next to an American one. From each plane, a prisoner emerged and walked across to the other. The U.S. returned to Russia a pilot, convicted of drug smuggling charges, sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. Russia returned to the U.S. 30-year-old former Marine Trevor Reed, who was serving time for assaulting a police officer. He has maintained his innocence. And this was a remarkable prisoner swap uh, for any moment, but especially during this time of war in Ukraine. With us now, U.S. State Department Spokesman Ned Price. Hey, Ned.
13: Hey, Mary Louise. Thanks for having me. Um,
9: The U.S. has been trying to get Trevor Reed home the whole time he's been detained there, nearly three years. What was the breakthrough?
13: Well, I can only speak to this administration and the release of Trevor Reed and the return of him to his family has been a top priority ever since we came into office uh, in January of last year. And Today, once again, we made good on our commitment to bring home an American who's detained unjustly uh, around the world. We've done that in places like Haiti and Burma and Afghanistan and Venezuela, and now, today, Russia. And so the news we uh, received and confirmed this morning was really the result of months of concerted effort across this department on the part of our special envoy for hostage affairs, Roger Karstens and his team, uh, on the part of the White House and the part of our embassy in Moscow right. and our ambassador, John Sullivan, uh, and many others uh, across this uh, government. And we- again, can
9: you, share, can you share any details in terms of, of what it was that broke the logjam?
13: Well, again, this was the result of of months of discussions with uh, the Russians. The president uh, ultimately had to make a very tough decision, but he made the decision to bring home an American who's health was uh, a concern of ours. It was it was a source of intense concern. And he made uh, the, uh, the decision to deliver on that very commitment to resolve these cases and to reunite Americans with their uh, loved ones. Um, and so what couple- I can tell you right now is that Trevor Reed is on a plane on his way home. He's accompanied by our special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, uh, and he'll be back in the United States uh, later today.
9: And what is his health condition? How's he doing?
13: Well, he's in good spirits. Uh, As you might imagine, he's relieved. Uh, He was able to speak to his family uh, as soon as he boarded the plane. I know that he's looking forward to speaking to them. Uh, I think, uh, as you saw, uh, he was able to uh, walk himself onto the plane and he'll receive the care he needs uh, when he lands in the United States.
14: You
9: described this as a tough decision for the president. um, And I'm curious why. Was the sense was that uh, the US would have liked a better deal, would have liked Russia to release more Americans?
13: Well, of course, we're always trying to uh, see the release of Americans who are unjustly detained. And there is another Amer- American who's unjustly detained uh, in Russia, Paul Whelan. Uh, we're working tirelessly on his case. Uh, we're working tirelessly to support Brittany Greiner, uh, other Americans who uh, are detained in Russia and, and elsewhere around the world. Uh, ultimately, this was a decision that was predicated on the fact. Uh, that, again, uh, this is someone who had been unjustly detained for nearly two years, whose health was in poor condition. Nearly three, uh, condition. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, right. For right. for more than mm-hmm. two years, mm-hmm. whose health mm-hmm. was in uh, poor condition. And ultimately, uh, the president did make the decision to commute the sentence of a, of a Russian smuggler uh, who had served the majority of his sentence yeah. for a nonviolent uh, drug crime. He commuted it, and that, that in no way diminishes. Uh, the import of the finding uh, of his guilt.
9: Since you brought up the other Americans being detained in Russia, Paul Whelan, and I heard you say the US is working tirelessly to get him out because he's being unjustly held. You also mentioned WNBA star Brittany Griner. Secretary Blinken did not mention her in his statement. Is the US view that she is also being unjustly held in Russia?
13: Well, Mary Louise, each case is unique. Uh, And in the case of Brittany Griner, uh, it is distinct from Paul Whelan. It's distinct from the from the case of Trevor Reed, uh, really from any other case. Uh, Brittany Griner is a case we've been working on ever since uh, we learned of her detention earlier this year. Uh, we've been working through our embassy in Moscow to secure consular access. A member of our embassy team was able to visit with her recently. We're continuing to press the Russian government for consistent access to her so that we can check on her condition. Uh, we do understand she's been uh, consistently able to see uh, her legal team but we in turn so the u.s uh, are is working contact.
9: is working to support her but you're not gonna you're not gonna wait into the waters of whether the u.s believes she's being unjustly held
13: absolutely working to support her we're in regular contact with her legal representation with her broader network as well uh, to provide her with what she needs okay
9: uh, just very briefly does this signal any softening in the relationship any goodwill
13: Uh, I wouldn't say that at all. Uh, This was about one thing and one thing only. It was the release uh, of Trevor Reed. Uh, As I said before, this was a deal that was orchestrated by our special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. That's the key word in his title, hostage. Uh, And that's what this was about.
9: We've been talking with Ned Price, spokesman for the State Department. Thank you. Thank you. And you're listening to All Things Considered.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on All Things Considered the staffing crisis for adult
7: care centers around the country. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, now open. The beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. In business news, Boston Scientific Corporations
0: reporting better than expected earnings for the first quarter. The Marlboro-based company says it adjusted its adjusted earnings worked out to 39 cents per share, one penny above analyst expectations. Total revenue was a little more than $3 billion. On Wall Street, little change for the markets today. The Dow was up 61 points at 33,301. NASDAQ fell one point to 12,488. And the S&P 500 rose eight points to end the day at 4,183. It's 419.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham, inviting you May 2nd to 4th to explore the revolutionary power of gene and cell therapies at the World Medical Innovation Forum. Hear from doctors, scientists, investors, and entrepreneurs leading the transformation of healthcare. with presenting sponsor Bank of America, worldmedicalinnovation.org.
0: In the forecast, it'll be cloudy skies to start the evening, clearing as the night goes on with lows down in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the lower 50s. Remember, join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering at 6 p.m. tonight for a discussion with the Massachusetts Democratic gubernatorial candidates on energy and environmental issues. The event will be at WBUR City Space, and it will be live-streamed on WBUR.org. Again, it starts at 6 p.m.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, Corporate food solutions at easycater.com.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz.
14: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
9: When there's a huge line at your local coffee shop because maybe they're short-staffed, it can be annoying. Well, our next guest argues that for his industry, staff shortages are more than an annoyance. They can be life-threatening. Christopher White is CEO of Road to Responsibility. That is a Massachusetts company that provides care and services for adults with disabilities. They are struggling to find workers because they can't match the starting wage being offered by other businesses, businesses, Businesses like Target, say, or Bank of America. Christopher White, welcome to All Things Considered.
3: Thanks for having me, Mary Louise.
9: Um, Just in a sentence or two, would you tell me a little bit more about the people you are serving? Who who comes to a company like Road to Responsibility?
3: So we serve adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including autism and acquired brain injuries. They are as young as 22, and our oldest person that we support is, I believe, 97.
9: Oh, okay. So quite a range. And when you say you're short-staffed, how short-staffed? What's the gap?
3: Uh, We have 260 vacant positions right now, which represents about 27% of our total workforce.
9: What is your understanding of why? Why can't you hire
3: these people? To keep it really simple, there's three big factors. There's uh, demographics that COVID drove a lot of boomers to retire a lot sooner than was predicted. Mm. A vast immigrant population has for many years been a Band-Aid for human service staffing woes uh, that's really no longer available. And the big one, though, is just the pay rates. The employment market has changed radically in the, I guess, we're in a sort of post-COVID world right
9: now. Yeah, the transitioning out of COVID world. Yeah. Yeah. How big is the gap? I said you can't match wages being offered elsewhere.
3: The state contracts we have will support entry-level wages of between $15 an hour and $16.79 an hour for our direct care staff. We increased that rate using one-time dollars this year to $17 an hour. And thankfully, that plus generous recruitment and retention bonuses stopped the hemorrhaging of staff leaving the workforce, but it hasn't really allowed us to gain any ground. Uh, Whereas people can go down the street and work for Dunkin' Donuts for $18 an hour, we can't compete with it.
9: What does it mean to be trying to run a company and have 27% fewer staff than you need to be fully staffed? What are the consequences of that? Like, what isn't getting done?
3: Well, we're getting things done, but quality isn't what it was, and people are exhausted. You know, I've got staff who are routinely working 100 hours a week.
9: 100 hours a week? Yep. Routinely?
3: routinely you know so when people are working that much and are tired mistakes get made and again we're not alone this is happening everywhere
9: it sounds like you're dealing with a really vulnerable population and what you're saying is uh, there there are delays in their in their care and their treatments that they need
3: Yeah. And for many people, it means they're not getting services at all. People that were participating in our day services, either employment or a therapeutic day service for people who are more medically compromised and older, we've only been able to get about 60% of the people we were serving pre-COVID back into service. And the folks That we have been able to get back into service, we've seen really major declines in their skills and abilities because they haven't been getting the support they need.
9: Christopher White, thank you. Thank you. He is CEO of Road to Responsibility in Massachusetts. And we called the Massachusetts Executive Office of Health and Human Services to allow them to respond. We have not heard back
10: some texas families with trans kids are leaving or are considering leaving the state that's because texas governor greg abbott called parents who get their kids gender-affirming care child abusers and said they should be investigated houston public media's sarah willa ernst reports these families don't see a future in texas
16: that about the bugs
17: mom dad and the kids are huddled in their tv room in austin Eyes are glued to a video game. The dad, Brian, is managing the controller, but it's his kids who are the real brains of the operation.
5: Oh, battle!
17: Dad, you have a battle Brian and his wife, Susan, are the parents of five-year-old twins, including a transgender girl, who started expressing gender variance at age two.
18: Well, well, I think I like spirit tracks better. Their daughter has grown
17: out her hair and changed her pronouns. She isn't old enough for puberty blockers, but Brian and Susan are still worried about getting reported to Child Protective Services, which is why they ask we only use their first names.
19: I don't want to leave, on the other hand. If we had to, I know we'd be okay.
20: Yeah, it's just kind of crummy.
17: Only in recent months, conversations about leaving Austin have become plans. That change happened in February, when the governor and AG started calling gender-affirming care child abuse. My worst fear had come true, with no warning and no time buffer or anything. Fear describes most of the past year for Susan and Brian. They followed bills in the legislature that sought to criminalize gender-affirming care. Those ultimately failed, which led to the governor's directive months later. An injunction currently puts these investigations on hold, but Susan isn't hopeful. I just can't picture a situation in which this doesn't get worse. Susan and Brian, who both work in education, are looking for jobs in states with stronger civil rights protections for trans people.
15: It never crossed my mind that we would go anywhere else, but I can't, I can't
17: do that anymore. So now, they're preparing to say goodbye to Texas.
15: I can't think ahead to a time when my kids are older. I can't imagine buying a home. I don't even feel comfortable taking
17: a
21: job here.
17: Susan's heartbroken to leave her sister and the kid's grandparents. Moving elsewhere is on the table for many others, says Shelley Skeen, with the LGBTQ rights group Lambda Legal.
22: I really can't think of any parent that I've talked to that hasn't considered this.
17: But not all the 50 families her group is working with have the means to relocate.
22: Takes a pretty big toll on a family because you're taking your kids out of school and you're bringing them to a completely different place. You've got to maintain an apartment. People just can't do that.
17: I definitely don't feel like I'm on the other side of it. (laughs) I wish. Rachel, her husband, and their three kids are from North Texas. She and the kids have just moved to Colorado. That's because one of the children is non-binary, and another is a trans teenager on hormone therapy, the kind of treatment the governor is targeting. And because of that, Rachel asked we only use her first name as well. This time has been like a slow unraveling of stress. They're staying with family until they find a house. Her husband, who works in IT, is still back in Texas until he can relocate. We still have so many things that are in transition, just feeling really paranoid about, you know, any connections that we have and how those could bite us. The difficulty of letting go is balanced by the welcome she feels in Colorado, such as gender-inclusive bathrooms at the school she's considering for her kids. She believes that now, her family has a real shot at happy, healthy lives. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Willa Ernst in Houston.
0: This Is NPR News. This is ninety point nine WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Just ahead on all things considered how Brazil's vaccination rate went up in a big way once the government there started encouraging people to get the shots. That's coming up. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy to start tonight, then clearing with lows down in the upper thirties. Tomorrow all sunshine, highs in the low to mid fifties. Right now fifty-four degrees in Boston at 429.
15: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org and Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait, visit youhaveus.org. I say Fed, you hopefully think Federal Reserve. I say
7: PCE, you should think inflation.
9: It allows us to do what we all do when we go to the grocery store, which is we say, oh, this goods gotten more expensive, oranges have gotten more expensive, so maybe I'll buy grapefruit.
7: I'm Kai Rizdal. what PCE is and why Jay Powell likes it, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
23: Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. and Russia swapped prisoners today, with Moscow releasing former Marine Trevor Reed, whose health in a Russian prison was said to be declining, for Russian pilot Konstantin Yaroshenko. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says getting Reed back was a priority.
2: Knowing not only had he been held against his will for too long, but that his health condition required urgent treatment, he's going to be able to not only be reunited, reunited with his family, but to receive the treatment he needed from the United states
23: president biden says the swap was unrelated to russia's war in ukraine that leaves at least two other well-known americans in russian jails former marine paul whelan accused of espionage and Brittany griner a professional basketball player accused of carrying hashish oil the House approved legislation today that would require federal judges to disclose more information about their personal financial holdings. And Piers Deirdre Walsh reports on a rare bipartisan effort to promote transparency. Federal judges must recuse themselves
24: from presiding over any cases in which they have a personal financial interest. But Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries said an investigation about how federal judges deal with potential conflicts of interest showed many ignored the rules or were unaware of
25: them. The infrequency of judges' financial disclosures and the inaccessibility of the reports have made actual transparency practically impossible.
24: The new law will require federal judges to follow the same disclosure laws that apply to members of Congress and senior executive branch officials about publicly reporting their stock holdings. The Senate already passed the bill, so it heads to the president's
23: desk for his signature. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 61 points, the Nasdaq down one, SP and p 500 up eight. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiers in Boston. The Essex County District Attorney is charging a former Massachusetts Department of Correction employee with the 1988 murder of an 11-year-old girl in Lawrence. Melissa Trembley was found stabbed to death in a Lawrence rail yard today. DA Jonathan Blodgett is announcing the arrest of 74-year-old Marvin McClendon Jr. He lives in Alabama now, Blodgett says. Evidence recovered from Trembley's body ties McClendon to the killing. A memorial to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King is going up on Boston Common. Crews held a groundbreaking ceremony today for the installation called Embrace. It's meant to be a symbol of love, equity, inclusion, and justice. Dr. King and Coretta Scott King met in Boston. Lowell's new city manager will start work tomorrow. Last night, the city council finalized a contract to officially hire Tom Golden to a five-year contract. He is a former state representative from Lowell. An exhibit in Milton focuses on a complicated and not well-understood period in Boston's history, the 19th century opium trade. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports.
24: Opium, the business of addiction, is at the Forbes House Museum, a mansion built in 1833 with profits from the sale of opium to the Chinese. Museum director Heidi Vaughn says the exhibit looks at the roots of that trade and its continued effect on addiction, international relations, and the Boston institutions it funded.
11: There's lots of interesting subjects that are very relevant to our lives today, so we tried to explore all of these, and we hope that we'll get a lot of people thinking about them and discussing them long after they leave our exhibition.
24: The exhibit opens today at the Forbes House Museum in Milton and runs through next March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
7: The time is 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers farmerstu.com slash WBUR.
0: In the forecast cloudy this afternoon and early evening with clearing skies later on, lows should be in the upper 30s.
26: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More
9: at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Rob Schmitz. The World Health Organization's goal of getting 70% of the world's population vaccinated by June is not going to happen. And it may never. It's making officials reconsider what the real goal of global COVID vaccination should be. To talk about this and the many twists and turns in the global vaccination effort, we're joined by NPR Global Health Correspondents Nareet Eisenman and Jason Bobian. Hello. Hi. Hey. Nareet, let's start with you. You are, in fact, in Brazil right now reporting on this vaccine issue.
1: Yes, I'm in Rio de Janeiro. I'm looking out through my window over this city's famous Ipanema Beach, where I'm not seeing any masking. There's hmm. definitely a relaxed feeling here about the coronavirus right now, and that's largely due to a vaccination rate that is very high and certainly higher than the U.S., huh. But the path to get there has been twisty indeed.
10: Oh yeah, even before vaccines and treatments, Brazil's president Jair Bolsonaro was basically comparing COVID to a bad cold.
1: Exactly, and he was also totally initially disinterested in vaccines. But then by January of 2021, when Brazil's Sao Paulo state started doing vaccinations, there was such a clamor across the country for vaccines to be made available everywhere that Bolsonaro's government basically had to change tack. Brazil got the technology to make the AstraZeneca vaccine, and it started buying tens of millions of Pfizer doses. And today, 76% of Brazilians are fully vaccinated. Among Brazilians age five or older, it's 85% that are fully vaccinated. And by the way, in the U.S., 65% of the population is fully vaccinated.
10: Wow, that's a big difference. How did Brazil's government turn things around? Was there a major public relations campaign, stuff like giveaways like we had in this country?
1: Well, President Bolsonaro did not start promoting the vaccines. If anything, he continued making comments suggesting incorrectly that vaccines aren't all that protective. But Brazil has this very long and proud tradition of public vaccination. I spoke about this national culture of vaccination with Soterios Misalides of the Biomanguinis Institute at Fiocruz Foundation. It's this government-funded facility that essentially makes many of the vaccines that are used in Brazil. And Misalides noted that Brazil has this network of public clinics that offer people vaccines for free. Brazilians are used to this. And so he says, when it came to COVID,
3: the national response, the general response is to go in the line and vaccinate and for, for the population it's almost a right. Uh, they have the right to vaccination.
1: Even without a major public relations campaign, people just came forward to get their COVID jabs in a steady stream month after month.
10: As you said, it's a right. Uh, Let's turn to Jason. Jason, you've been in the Middle East, in Iraq, where vaccination rates are pretty low. Uh, Is this a matter of not having enough doses or what's going on here?
27: Yeah, I I was in Iraq for much of February. And at at that point, only 17% of Iraq's population was fully vaccinated. Now it's only up to 18%. So there hasn't even been a lot of movement in the last couple of months. And what's interesting here is that this is a country that has plenty of vaccines um iraqis can get pfizer astrazeneca sinopharm doses are offered for free in clinics um also you've got campaigns of people out in markets and shopping malls offering it but health workers were telling me that people simply weren't interested um you know there are very high levels of distrust both about the west and by iraqis about their own government so some people simply didn't want to get vaccinated because the government was telling them that they should and also for many people, they just didn't see it as a priority. You know, they've got other problems in their life and this was not something that was important to them.
10: Hmm. And, and Iraq is not an isolated case. You're, you're seeing this elsewhere too, right?
27: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a lot of places that have struggled with other you know, health and social programs in the past are also struggling with COVID vaccinations. I mean, Haiti, for instance, has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the world. I should point out that they did struggle to get doses early on. Uh, but, you know, they've also been facing earthquakes and political instability and unbelievable levels of gang violence. And, you know, and in that context, a vaccine against what's seen as a disease that doesn't seem to be killing a lot of people around them or making people very sick. You know, it isn't a major priority. The, the average Haitian is 24 years old. So this is a very young country and people are less vulnerable to severe cases of covid, even if they do catch it. And this is something you were also seeing play out in many African countries. Wow. Uh, you know, I'm looking
10: at a map showing vaccination rates globally, and Africa really does stand out for having very low rates of, of vaccination. Narit, you've also been speaking to health officials there, right?
1: Yes, uh, particularly health advocates in South Africa, where there's a robust discussion now about whether, given that so many people who couldn't get the vaccine early on, now have some protection due to infection with the coronavirus, The discussion is whether this repeatedly stated goal of vaccinating as many people as possible is kind of misplaced. There's the sense that it's distracting from a much bigger priority, which is to get a really high share of the elderly and other very vulnerable people vaccinated and boosted. These are the people who even after exposure to the virus are still at the most risk from future infections.
27: Yeah, this is definitely something that we're hearing more of globally. You know, many officials are giving up on the idea that everybody should get vaccinated or will even choose to. It, it seems like we're entering a new phase and we're adopting this more pragmatic approach in focusing efforts more intensely, as Narit says, on the most vulnerable.
10: That was Jason Bobian and Narit Iserman from NPR's Global Health Reporting Team. Thanks to you both. You're welcome. You're welcome.
27: Across
9: the country, school districts are banning books from classrooms and school libraries. Books like The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and the memoir Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe. But NPR's Andrew Limbung says one library system has a novel idea to fight back.
16: Let's say you're a 14-year-old kid living in a school district that's just banned the young adult memoir All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. You can email the Brooklyn Public Library system over in New York and explain to them the situation.
13: We are offering them basically a free out-of-state e-card.
16: That's Nick Higgins, chief librarian at the Brooklyn Public
13: Library. Which gives them access to about half a million audiobooks and and e-books in our system at Brooklyn Public Library. Unrestricted, totally for free. This would
16: normally cost 50 bucks, by the way, and it's specifically for younger people, folks between the ages of 13 and 21. It's part of a campaign the library is calling Books Unbanned, and the free e-card is just one part of it. Another part is connecting teens in districts with banned books to participating teenagers in Brooklyn. Teens like Gabasya Goob, a junior at Midwood High School, <laughs> and the type of kid who, uh, when you ask if she's read any good books lately, uh, says stuff like,
18: Well, it's hard to say because I don't have a favorite
28: book because all books are my favorite. <laughs>
16: the point is for these kids to get together and share resources to push back against encroaching censorship and, of course, talk books. Because, as Yagoob says, a book isn't just a story.
17: So, it's a really good opportunity to learn and to like decipher the messages or the hidden motives of characters or like the significance of settings and of symbols of stories just like these to like gain knowledge for yourself and also like gain an understanding of
13: the world, also.
16: Nick Higgins, the chief librarian. Notice this is just a small step in the bigger fight against book bans.
13: You know, listen, in defending books that we agree with and don't agree with, with equal fervor and determination.
16: He says hopefully it'll lead to some hard soul-searching from public libraries everywhere when it comes to pushing back against outside voices calling for book bans. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're
10: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After 12 years at the helm of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, the organization's president, has announced he plans to step down by June 30th of 2023. This comes just one year after he signed an extension to lead the NCAA through 2025. During Emmert's time in leadership, the NCAA's revenue exceeded $1 billion a year through television contracts. But his tenure has also been marked by several controversies and major changes in the ways student-athletes are treated. Nicole Auerbach is a senior writer with The Athletic, and she joins us now to talk about this. Hey, Nicole.
29: Hey, thanks for having me.
10: So, Nicole, I'm curious, why has the NCAA reached this agreement on his resignation now? I mean, last year around this time, the inequity between the men's and women's basketball tournaments came to light. Was that the final straw or was it something else?
29: Well, I think that a lot of this has just been building and, you know, one administrator put it this way. He he lost the locker room and there have been a lot of athletic directors and commissioners who have been very disappointed with this lack of leadership and also just reactive ways to changing issues. I mean, name, image and likeness, the NCAA was so far behind on and not proactive at all. And the courts ended up deciding um, you know, basically what the framework can be for athlete compensation related to academic benefits would pave the way for a largely unregulated space in, in name, image, and likeness right now. And I, I think there's a number of issues. The women's basketball tournament is absolutely one, but the, the phrase losing a locker room, I think is... a, is a a really good way to think about this because when people have lost faith in you as a leader it becomes really hard to lead and i think there's so many changes going on with ncaa governance and what the future of college sports will be i think there were a lot of people who felt like this was a natural breaking point and a good time to have somebody else who can who can actually the
10: you mentioned the name image and likeness controversy uh, and you know his critics as you say he stood in the way of progress on this front you know, as you've covered the NCAA, how do you see it? I mean, was he in any way a catalyst for change? I mean, we've you just mentioned how he was a big barrier to it.
29: Well, there were different times, I think, where, you know, he has tried to lead an organization to certain points. And it's a membership organization, so you need buy-in. So whether or not that was related to cost of attendance, I've been to help bring athlete scholarships basically up to the full cost of attendance at other scholarships bring brings regular students on campus I mean he has pushed for different things over the years but I think you know we we saw overreach in terms of sanctions in response to Penn State we have seen you know kind of him him put his foot in his mouth on a number of different issues he he's talked a lot about existential crises facing college sports and he's used that term so many times different times. I think it's lost a little bit of its bite. But I think the legal strategy in, in relation to the Alton case, which was up going all the way up to the Supreme Court, and again, just the lack of leadership and getting people behind and working together on various issues to get out in front on the name, image, and likeness issue, those are things that people have constantly talked about. And it's just gotten worse and worse, again, as we've seen how unregulated it is.
10: And Nicole, your, your line is a little scratchy. So I'm just going to have one more question for you. What do you think the NCAA will be looking for in its next president?
29: Well, I think it's going to be either, you know, we're, we're going to have to figure out what the organization looks like. Is it just about running championships and, and certifying eligibility that, that would lead to a certain candidate? Or is it about getting people to work together, working with the Power Five commissioners? Um, you know, there were a couple names that, that continued to come up and it's, it's a lot of university presidents who really understand athletics, like a Jim Clements at Clemson, I think is a really strong candidate for that reason. But you have to be able to marry the academic mission with athletic experience.
10: That's Nicole that's Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic.
9: It's NPR News.
0: This is WBUR coming up on all things considered how a Chinese American's family has lost the ability to speak Mandarin over the generations. And tomorrow Boston singer Miranda Ray coming into her own as she prepares to take the stage at the Boston Calling Music Festival tomorrow.
20: What we just made was
28: you got something I like. Some kind of feeling that got me feeling so high
0: Raise the next Boy, artist so in our series on rising local musicians. Sound on. You can hear from her tomorrow on WBUR's All Things Considered.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu slash SSW. And Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at MassCulturalCouncil.org. In the forecast,
0: mostly cloudy to start tonight, then clearing with lows down in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, all sunshine, highs in the low to mid-50s. Right now, 55 Four degrees in Boston at 449.
7: WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. SemesterOff.com.
18: I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's
9: make mornings better.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz,
9: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than one billion people in the world speak Mandarin Chinese. And NPR's Emily Kuang wants to join that group. Okay, how do you say this? Emily is Chinese-American on her father's side. Last year, at age 30, she began to learn Chinese for the very first time and unpacked why she is so determined to learn it in the first place. Here's Emily in conversation with her dad.
30: So yeah, this is a conversation I've actually wanted to have with you for a long time. Good. That is an understatement. I've wanted to ask my dad about our language for a lifetime.
5: My name is uh, Christopher Kwong. I'm 62, I was born in New York City.
30: Growing up, dad remembers tagging alongside his grandmothers as they did the shopping in Chinatown.
5: I just went into fish markets, meat markets, vegetable markets.
30: Surrounded by people conversing and bartering and going about their day in Chinese.
5: It was the only thing I understood. In a world of non-Chinese, when I was outside, it was anxiety and confusion. And not knowing what was really being said and just clicking a little harder. But when you hear your native language, it's a reminder of you're safe.
30: But here's the thing. My father stopped speaking Mandarin when he was five years old. He was in kindergarten and really struggling to communicate with his teacher, with his classmates, using the little English that he knew. And his parents, my grandparents, didn't want him to fall behind in school.
5: I was then given, you know, orders to start speaking English for my own emotional and social survival. So, so, I didn't hear Chinese again. The transition to English was
30: difficult. My dad struggled with the vowels. He says his mom, my grandma, Hui, spent hours drilling him, and he didn't feel like he had a choice.
5: I realized I had to engage in a different world, a uh, world of English, so you know, I should just be pragmatic, and let go, and go with English. Yeah. That's a big decision for a little kid to make, you know? Well, my need for, I felt, for survival was uh, greater than my uh, hurt. Yeah.
30: When you say need for survival, what do you mean?
5: Meaning to integrate into society. You have to integrate, otherwise you're, you're, you're gonna be really in a terrible place.
30: I get what my dad is saying, but assimilation has a cost. Gaining a foothold in America meant losing the first language my dad's ever known. When you lose a, your language, it's a, almost a form of violence if it's taken from you, right? Amelia Sang is a sociolinguist at American University, someone who studies how languages shift across
23: immigrant generations. You know, we're a very multilingual country and always have been, but we are, have not historically been supportive of other languages, um, either through sort of active
26: suppression or through just sort of a lack of interest in supporting them.
30: Amelia says that lack of support is rooted in things like nationalism and xenophobia. It has caused some linguists to call the U.S. a language graveyard.
24: Chi-fan.
30: Chi-dian. So, that's why I'm learning Chinese. At least trying to.
24: Oh, no, I
30: got this. Um, hold on. And I've decided that any shame I might feel about imperfect pronunciation, fumbles with grammar, is nothing compared to the shame I've felt about not knowing the language at all. The shame I feel as my older relatives rattle off dim sum dishes and I stare down the menu pictures, feeling like a fraud within my own identity, missing something I never had in the first place. Meanwhile, my dad isn't as sentimental about this as I am. When I say something like, I I love you. Do you internalize that sentence? If I were to say, that I love you in English.
5: In English, of course, it resonates Chinese. It's like, I registered Emily's learning Chinese.
30: Maybe if I get better at the pronunciation one day, it will like...
5: Our words will always be English, Emily. I was hoping the Chinese for you is just to give yourself that opportunity to uh, embrace your other racial's half. I
30: mean, my birth certificate says I'm white. Mm even though my father was standing right there in the delivery room. And this erasure of him, of who I fully am and the language of his family, really hurts. It's left me with a feeling that I'm not Chinese enough. Amelia says there's a word for what I'm feeling, racial imposter syndrome. And moving through it requires flexibility, self-compassion, and reimagining what it means to be Chinese in America, our identities are something dynamic, not a box you check on a form.
2: Part of how we create
23: it is through language, the languages we speak, who we talk to, but also how we talk about ourselves and other people.
30: Learning a language is like building a bridge, and sometimes that bridge connects you to your identity.
11: I think there's
30: more eggs. Some of my earliest memories are of my dad's mom, my grandma Hui, trying to teach me Chinese in the years before she and my grandfather died. Home movies are proof. I can hear both languages being spoken interchangeably. And I find it kind of beautiful that my grandmother, the same person who taught my father English so he could survive in her last years, was teaching me Chinese so it could survive within me. It feels like a language that's ours. It belongs to our family, and I can engage with it if I want to and as much as I want to.
5: It is who we are, so we have to cling or retain or perhaps relearn what we are. So I think you know this This is a, a journey of exploration for you, and. This is so you can tie back to where you came from.
30: (laughs) That means a lot to hear you say that. I am Chinese-American, even if I'll never be perfectly fluent in Chinese. It's taken me 30 years to say that sentence. And I just wish my grandmother was alive to hear it. Emily Kwong, NPR News.
9: Emily is a host and reporter for NPR's Shortwave podcast. This story was part of the Where We Come From series, stories from immigrant communities of color. The series was created and produced by Anjali Sastry-Kirbacek. And you can find more audio and video episodes of the series, including a video of Emily's journey to learn Chinese on our website, npr.org.
10: The Walt Disney Company spoke up against a new law in Florida. Then-Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill dissolving Disney World's independent municipal status. Can he legally do that? That story, tomorrow on Morning Edition. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft, at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com credit. Aspiration
15: Financial, LLC. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum with each other. Featuring two leading indigenous artists, Marie Watt and Chinupa Hanska Luger. Closes May 8th, tickets at PEM.org. And EF Gap Year, an international gap program where students can learn a language, intern abroad, and help make an impact. Learn more at efgapyear.com.
24: I'm healthcare reporter, Martha Biebinger.
0: The U.N. Secretary General calls for a ceasefire in Ukraine, but many there say there can be no negotiated peace with Russia. It's Wednesday, April 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming out the anger towards Russia among Ukrainians amid growing evidence of atrocities that have killed thousands of civilians. Also, the future of the pandemic era program that allowed the government to quickly expel migrants and what happens if it is limited, lifted.
6: We have a plan that we have developed and that we have been implementing since September of this past year. That is underway in its execution.
0: And the dairy industry invests big to go carbon neutral by 2050. One of those projects? lower carbon cows it's 501 first this hour's news
25: live from npr news in washington i'm jack spear western officials are expressing skepticism over russia's claims it plans to take over ukraine's black sea coast and link up with fellow russian troops in a separatist region of moldova NPR's Frank Langford reports from Kiev.
7: Western officials say Russia would have a difficult time extending its supply lines all the way to Transnistria, the pro-Russian breakaway republic in Moldova, borders southwestern Ukraine. They say such an operation would require taking the Black Sea port city of Odessa, which has had two months to build up defenses, and also an amphibious landing, which Russia's military would be anxious about. Following the sinking of its cruiser the Moskva. Transnistria generated attention this week following a series of mysterious attacks. Targets included a government office building and radio broadcast towers. Moldovan President Maya Sandu blamed them on what she called pro-war forces in Transnistria, trying to destabilize her country. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kiev.
25: A memorial service was held today for the nation's first female secretary of state. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports President Biden joined congressional leaders and other dignitaries at Washington, D.C.'s National Cathedral to pay their final respects to Madeleine Albright, who died last month at the age of 84.
31: Madeleine Albright was praised for her trailblazing efforts that helped shape foreign policy during the Clinton administration. President Biden eulogized the former secretary as a force of nature and a champion of democracy.
3: With her goodness and grace, her humanity and her intellect, she turns the tide of history.
31: The president also looked back on some of Albright's lighter moments.
3: She could go toe-to-toe with the toughest dictators, then turn around and literally teach a fellow ambassador how to do the Macarena on the floor of the UN Security Council.
31: Biden said Albright remained a nexus of the foreign policy community in the years after she left office. Windsor Johnston, NPR News.
25: Former President Donald Trump is appealing a New York judge's ruling he paid $10,000 a day for refusing to respond to a subpoena. Here's NPR's Andrea Bernstein.
1: The finding of contempt was handed down this week by Judge Arthur N. Goron Donald Trump had failed to produce any documents in response to a lawful subpoena by the New York Attorney General. N. Goran said in his ruling that Trump had not shown he'd searched certain file cabinets, and his lawyer's claims that he'd done a good-faith search for documents were woefully inadequate. Now Trump's lawyer Alina Haba has filed a notice of appeal. She's already appealing a previous ruling that Donald, Don Jr., and Ivanka Trump have to testify under oath to the New York Attorney General about whether they'd repeatedly lied about property values. Both cases are expected to be argued in an appeals court this spring. The Trumps have denied wrongdoing. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York.
25: On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 61 points today. This is NPR. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. A potential ban on child marriages in Massachusetts is moving forward. The House yesterday voted unanimously in favor of ending what many call an outdated practice. Current law allows children under 18 to get married with a parent's consent. Representative Mark Day, though, says he's heard cases of minors, mostly young girls, stuck in marriages because their husbands became their legal guardian.
25: You know, this reflects the evolution of our understanding as society, and I think that the unanimous vote really drives that home.
0: The issue was taken up as an amendment as part of the House budget, which will get a vote in the coming days. The Senate will then take up the issue as well. Boston Common is getting a new memorial for the first time in decades. It's called The Embrace, and it honors civil rights activists Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. A local group dedicated to the King's legacy hosted a groundbreaking today on what would have been Coretta Scott King's 95th birthday. King Boston's executive director, Imari Paris-Jeffrey, says the 22-foot memorial will represent a wide-sweeping vision for Boston.
9: We know that the embrace will stand tall
16: as our collective symbol of love, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice.
0: The Kings first met in Boston. Connecticut is extending its suspension of the 25-cent state gas tax until December. Governor Ned Lamott says he'll extend the suspension beyond June because he believes the war in Ukraine will keep gas prices high. The Magis- Massachusetts legislature has repeatedly rejected a similar measure. Lowell is allowing restaurants to continue offering outdoor dining on sidewalks and in parking lots this year. The city council approved the extension yesterday. City manager's office says the program's been successful during the pandemic and allows customers to feel safe while dining out. In sports, Red Sox play the Blue Jays in Toronto tonight. Bruins and Celtics are both off in the forecast. It'll be mostly cloudy this afternoon and early tonight. Then clearing skies with lows down in the upper 30s. All sunshine tomorrow, a few degrees cooler. Highs in the low to mid 50s. Right now, 53 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
4: WBUR supporters include the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at ALZ.org. From
10: NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz.
9: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Biden administration is spending the week explaining the plan to lift pandemic restrictions at the border. These are the restrictions known as Title 42. They were first put in place back during the Trump administration. Opponents say that ending Title 42 is a bad idea, and they are challenging the plan to do so in court and in Congress. Meanwhile, Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas is defending it, two lawmakers on Capitol Hill this week.
6: With the Title 42 public health order set to be lifted, we expect migration levels to increase as smugglers seek to take advantage of and profit from vulnerable migrants. We will continue to enforce our immigration laws.
9: So among the questions in play, what may happen to people seeking asylum at the southern border? Also, how the politics will play out here, especially with midterm elections looming? Let's bring in two of our correspondents who have been watching this closely. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram and NPR's Joel Rose, who covers immigration. Hey, you two. Hey there. Hi. Um, Joel, you first. Lay out the basics. How does Title 42 currently work, and what is the gist of the plan to end it?
32: Sure. So this is a a Trump era border policy that started more than two years ago. Uh, It allows immigration authorities to bypass normal immigration procedures in the name of protecting public health, you know, and rapidly expel migrants without giving them a chance to seek asylum under U.S. law. Immigrant advocates say that has forced migrants back to danger in Mexico or in their home countries. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has said that Title 42 is no longer necessary and the Biden administration has been preparing to lift the restrictions on May 23rd and insists, you know, as you say, it does have a plan to deal with a likely influx of migrants. This is actually the second time DHS has released a plan. This one has more details, more emphasis on enforcement of immigration laws that are on the that were on the books before the pandemic. And it seems, you know, intended to counteract the message we've heard a lot from Republicans and, and also from some Democrats that the administration has no plan.
9: Yeah, Deepa, jump in here because Democrats have been asking for this plan. They've, there are a lot of Democrats who are also nervous about the, the current plan. Uh, what does
21: that look like? Explain. Right. So since DHS has released these new details, we haven't heard much of a response from Democrats. And the White House actually held a briefing call with Capitol Hill yesterday after this updated plan was released. But the same Democrats who were expressing these concerns haven't really responded yet. And meanwhile, Republicans are filling that void with their own rhetoric about how this is, quote, Biden's border crisis. This is what Republican Senator James Lankford said earlier today.
25: It is policy insanity what they're doing. The plan that we were given yesterday, this plan statement that came in from Alejandro Mayorkas, this plan that was supposed to define out for us is not a plan at all. It's basically how they're gonna move people into the country faster.
21: And Republicans keep pointing to the part of the plan where Mayorkas acknowledges that the rise in migrant encounters at the border is a strain to the current immigration system.
9: Joel, right now, Title 42 is in place and we're seeing enormous numbers of migrants being apprehended at the southern border. Who are they?
32: Yeah, the majority are from Mexico and Central America, but increasingly they are coming from even farther away, places like Cuba, Venezuela, even Ukraine. Um, They are often fleeing violence, corruption, and poverty in their home countries. Things, by the way, that the Biden administration says have very little to do with U.S. immigration policy. But many Republicans disagree with that. They argue that these are overwhelmingly economic migrants who are really here to work and who are filing flimsy asylum claims in order to you know, sort of game the US immigration system.
21: Right. And what immigration advocates are also saying here is that Democrats are losing out on an opportunity to define where they stand on immigration and supporting asylum seekers, which is something that won them elections in 2018 and 2020. So uh, while Democrats have a chance to stand their ground on removing Title 42, they haven't been a united front on that at all. And what these immigration advocates are saying right now is that that might have a detrimental impact on Democrats turning out their base voters in the midterm elections this November, especially at a time when voter enthusiasm is pretty low for the party.
9: Hmm. We mentioned legal challenges. I know several states have challenged this plan to lift Title 42. Where does that stand?
32: Yeah, so far, those challenges are going well for the states. I mean, more than 20 states have joined the challenge filed by Arizona and Missouri and Louisiana. Um, The federal judge in Louisiana who is hearing that case has said he will grant a temporary restraining order to stop the Biden administration from starting to phase out Title 42. Um, and the judge says the states are likely to prevail on the bigger question of whether the CDC went through the proper process to end Title 42. And you know this is not the only example of the Biden administration trying to end a Trump era border policy and having a difficult time in court. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard arguments about the Biden administration's attempt to terminate the policy known as remain in Mexico, which forced migrants to wait south of the border for their immigration court hearings. The Biden administration tried to end that policy, too, but was blocked by a federal judge. And, you know, immigrant advocates say this is like the dead hand of the Trump administration and its allies continuing to tie the hands of the Biden administration when it comes to the border and and asylum.
9: Um, And meanwhile, Deepa, speaking of places where this could be challenged, the White House has said if Congress wants to weigh in and get in on the act here, they can. Are, Are they likely to?
21: Right. So we've seen Republicans already hold up a COVID relief bill trying to add in a vote on Title 42 that happened before Easter. And it's possible that we see it again with uh, Congress voting to provide more aid to Ukraine soon. So that is a possibility. But even though the White House has said that Congress could act legislatively on Title 42, we heard Press Secretary Jen Psaki say earlier this week that, you know, one way or another, Biden isn't really ready to dismiss or sign potential legislation on title 42 so it's kind of adding to this sort of confusing element of the white house's messaging on title 42 as well but the thing to keep an eye out for this week especially tomorrow is this house judiciary committee hearing uh, where dhs secretary Mayorkas is going to be speaking and there will be some partisan politics playing out there as well
9: and just real quick joel the timing here i mean if if the plan does end how quickly could that happen
32: Well, the uh, Title 42 is supposed to end on May 23rd, but uh, a lot of time for things to happen in court or on the Hill between now and then.
9: Indeed. So much in play. NPR's Joel Rose and Deepa Shivaram. Thank you, you two. You're welcome. Thanks.
10: The Russian invasion of Ukraine is now in its third month. Stories of alleged Russian military atrocities have piled up. The toll of dead children continues to rise. And anecdotes of suffering among the civilian population continue to spread. All of this is pushing many in Ukraine towards an absolutist view. There can be no negotiated peace with the Russian government. NPR's Tim Mack has more from eastern Ukraine on how this affects the
20: prospects for peace. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky recently acknowledged there was ultimately only one way to end the war. I think that whoever started this war will be able to end it. From the
12: beginning, I have insisted on
20: talks with the Russian president. Even with a fresh Russian offensive now underway, Zelensky is thinking ahead to how this war eventually ends. It's not that I want, it's that I have to meet him, so as to settle this conflict by diplomatic means. But among much of the Ukrainian public, pursuing diplomacy is a hard pill to swallow. We first met Irina Stefanko in the early days of the war, a medical doctor by training, at the time she was appealing for more medical supplies. When we followed up with her more recently, the situation had become a little less bleak for the Ukrainian military.
33: Mostly now I'm feeling hope. I try, I try to, don't lo- lose, uh, to don't lose my hope for the future.
20: Fear had given way to guarded optimism. But sometimes...
33: Uh, Sometimes I can be angry.
20: Irina is as humanitarian in spirit as they come, a soft-spoken professional who is seeking to alleviate human suffering in her country. But this war, the atrocities, the stories of life under Russian occupation, anecdotes of her personal acquaintances in those areas, all of this has crossed a line for her.
33: You can understand, I'm Christian. Uh, I understand. that we must love people we must be peaceful but really i'm so angry i really i understand that now we must win
20: this war stories of russian military conduct around civilians have built up a vast store of anger among the ukrainian population many of whom reject the idea of formal negotiations before the war Vasily Busharov owned a factory that built garden swing sets. Since the invasion, he and volunteers in the city of Zaporizhia have turned that factory into a place where they manufacture body armor for soldiers on the front lines.
22: I think it's impossible to find a peaceful
16: solution. And I think that hate and envy between the two countries and their people will go
20: on more than 50 years, not less. The broad impression that I've received in conversations all over the country is that the only exchange that Ukrainians want to have with the Russian government is through artillery shells and rifle rounds. Boris Velatov is the mayor of Dnipro, a city in eastern Ukraine which is a hub for humanitarian and military convoys to the front lines. A popular politician, he's known for being outspoken, brash, and blunt. But even he has to balance the popular distaste for negotiations with a reality. The wars generally only end through talks of some
6: kind.
34: I would say it this way, Russians always lie. They lie to the whole world, lie to the West, lie to their own people, and lie to themselves. That's why we don't believe them at all. That's why we do not believe in those talks, although talks have to take place. Any war ends with peace and talks.
20: This is the difficult path that President Zelensky must navigate. With so much of the public dead set against formal peace discussions with the Russian government, it's hard to see how the democratic government of Ukraine can pursue it, which suggests that the prospects for peace are low, at least in the short term. Tim Mack, NPR News, Nebro.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the hunger strike outside a police station in Kuwait in an effort to win citizenship.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership.
0: In business news, a group of state lawmakers is pushing for Massachusetts to form its own public bank. The Boston Globe Reports measures due to come up for a hearing and possible vote in the Financial Services Committee this week. Supporters say it would help underserved communities, particularly those of color, access financial capital for economic development and fill gaps left by private lenders. On Wall Street, little to no change for the markets today. The Dow was up 61 points at 33,301. NASDAQ fell a point to 12,488, and the S&P 500 rose 8 points to end the day at 4,183. Marketplace Lab, all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 5.19.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Celebrating Independent Bookstore Day in Boston and Cambridge on April 30th. Scavenger Hunt, Silent Reading Party, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this
20: station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love.
24: Just go to WBUR.org.
0: In the forecast, it'll be cloudy skies to start the evening, clearing as the night goes on with lows in the upper 30s. Right now, 52 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering.
9: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
34: And I'm Ari Shapiro. In a hot dirt yard outside a police station in Kuwait, activists have set up camp. They spent nearly three weeks on hunger strike, asking the Kuwaiti government for citizenship, led by a 50-year-old computer engineer named Mohammed Bargash.
25: We of of... He says
34: the government limits our right to an education, to health care, to an identity, to dignity. Although Bargash has lived in Kuwait his whole life, he, his wife, and seven children are officially stateless. The term is Bidun, which means without. The government is ignoring us, he says. No one cares. No one is giving us a solution. That's why he started his hunger strike. And other activists followed until there were six of them.
25: in a and humanity,
12: but this not
34: he says it's a tragedy that Kuwait is a rich country that pretends it supports human rights. Kuwaiti citizens benefit from generous social spending made possible by the government's oil wealth, but there are an estimated 100,000 or more Bedouin people in Kuwait who cannot access those benefits. Many have lived in Kuwait their entire lives. Just today, Bargash had his first meeting with Kuwaiti political leaders, and he says he's putting the hunger strike on pause in hopes of a breakthrough. Zara Marwan supports this protest. She was born stateless, but her family managed to leave Kuwait when she was a child. She became a U.S. citizen and an illustrator and children's book author. One of those books tells her own story.
28: I was born stateless in Kuwait in spite of my mom being a citizen. I was born stateless because my dad was born stateless because his dad didn't register in the 1940s.
34: You say his dad didn't register in the 1940s. We're going to need a bit of history here. Explain what happened.
28: Yeah, so three of my grandparents were Kuwaiti citizens, and only one wasn't. Citizenship was a new concept when it was introduced in Kuwait, and a lot of people didn't really see the importance of it since migration was so fluid. Both of my parents' families are from a larger historic migration of Southwest Iranians who went into the Arab Gulf in the early 1900s to work as sea laborers. So both sides of my families are from the same exact background, community, and historic neighborhood. Yet my mom's family are officially Kuwaiti and my dad's undefined.
34: And what's incredible is that that decision that people made generations ago ripples down to folks living in kuwait today
28: yeah there's an argument over there that stateless people should go back to their countries of origin but when i look at some of my cousins now what business do they have going back to a country that our great-grandparents left 120 years ago
34: would you ever want kuwaiti citizenship
28: i i think so yes just to maybe put it on my dad's grave
34: (laughs) Hmm. how long ago did he die
28: um my father passed away in 2016 and I feel like my parents always planned on returning to Kuwait after we became citizens, which is counter to the narrative of stateless people over there.
34: How did he think of himself? Did he think of himself as Kuwaiti, even if he didn't have a piece of paper saying as much?
28: Yes. I feel like there are so many people like my family, where my dad was Kuwaiti in speech, dress, and culture, and he wanted to be buried among our family, yet. Two years after his burial, there was a warrant out for his arrest for not renewing his foreigner's visa from the grave.
34: I'm sorry, explain that detail. That sounds um, uh, Orwellian. He needed a foreigner's visa his whole life, even though he was born and raised in Kuwait.
28: That's right. People are born in Kuwait as illegal residents now, and they don't get birth or death certificates or aren't allowed to marry or go to public school or leave the country, really, because no other country will accept them.
34: Do you remember how old you were when you learned the term Badoon and understood what it meant for your life?
28: I I think it came in waves when I saw our cards here and it said, birthplace, Kuwait, nationality, undefined. I didn't know what that meant. And my parents weren't very open about explaining what that meant. (laughs) Yeah. So it took me a long time to understand that even though I think of myself as Kuwaiti the way my parents thought of themselves as Kuwaiti, that people over there didn't see me in the same light.
34: In the U.S., people talk about undocumented immigrants or illegal immigrants, choose your phrase. Is this similar or is this a little bit deeper?
28: I think a little bit deeper in that we have no citizenship in any country. I think in the 1960s, my dad tried to say he was Iranian and get papers and was denied that too. So... Where can you belong if no government accepts you?
34: Do you imagine what your life would have been like if your family had not left Kuwait?
28: When I do, I imagine my life had I just received my rights. But when I sat with my uncle Ahmed recently a few years ago at the fish market, he told me, I know your life isn't easy over there, but it's better than what it would have been over here. So I keep that in mind all the time.
34: Zara Marwan is a children's book author and illustrator based in New Mexico. Thank you for talking with us.
9: Thank you. Los Angeles is home to hundreds of mom-and-pop donut stores run by immigrants from Cambodia. And Pierre's Netta Ulibi visited one
31: with an artist who has found a new way to use them in her work.
24: Okay. Yeah,
31: yeah. Donut Star, tucked away in a Southern California strip mall, is an unpretentious oasis of cheap coffee, lottery tickets, and a staggering array of freshly baked donuts.
35: Twisty glazed donut, sprinkles in blue and pink. And chocolate ball.
31: Artist Feng Huynh is here for a little sugary pick-me-up and artistic inspiration.
35: On, what is the orange one?
31: Wynn is a painter with a show-up now in Los Angeles. Instead of traditional canvases, she uses the distinctive pink boxes these donut shops are known for. I mean, it's a beautiful color, right? Bubblegum pink, and, she says, surprisingly easy to work with.
35: It's such a forgiving surface, and it grabs. It grabs the ink, it grabs the pencil, because I've drawn, i made portraits.
31: Wynn's donut box series portrays young people who grew up in their family's donut shops. They're children, she says, of boat people and refugees. She silkscreened their smiling faces in donut flavor colors. Maple, chocolate, banana, maraschino cherry. They look directly at the viewer.
35: This is of Andrew Hang, Bandy Andy, the rap artist. A lot of his work is about assimilating the immigrant experience.
25: Hey, Asian boy, Asian
6: kid. I am sorry when they said that you ate your dog's ribs. Asian girl,
31: Asian kid.
24: So I'm third-generation refugee.
31: Artist Feng Huin's family fled Cambodia in 1975, Vietnam in 1978, and before that, China during World War II. Her immigrant community has seen a frightening uptick in racist stereotyping, deportations, and attacks over the past few years. While her family story could be framed as the American dream, it's critical, Gwynne says, not to let their hard work and determination obscure other truths that
35: come with their success. There's a lot of guilt for being able to survive. There's a lot of guilt for being able to come to the United States and leaving. Some You have to leave family. There are a lot of family back home who weren't able to come.
31: Right now, Huynh says, as she looks at the faces of Ukrainian refugees and those from Afghanistan, Central America, and so many other places around the world, she thinks about the flash of pink boxes being carried out of donut stores all over California. As a signal, she says, of strength, of hope, of survival. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. The story of
9: a heart attack patient living in the Gaza Strip highlights the often unseen victims of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, those struggling to get life-saving medical care. You can hear that journey today on our daily news podcast, Consider This. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9
0: WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, what's behind the recent stock sell-off that's raising fears of a recession? Also, the effort to breed lower-carbon cows as the dairy industry looks to go carbon-neutral by 2050. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy to start tonight, then clearing with lows down in the upper 30s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston at 529.
15: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. Emerson Colonial Theater, presenting a conversation with chef, restaurateur, and food writer Yotam Odalenghi, this Saturday. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com and CitySide Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitySideSubaru.com
25: This case is about a former high school football coach named Joseph Kennedy, who got fired after he made a habit of going out to the 50-yard line after his team's games to thank God, to take a knee and say a prayer. And that firing raises all kinds of First Amendment issues.
20: I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight
25: at 8 on
23: WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The Pentagon says more than half the 90 howitzers that the U.S. recently promised to Ukraine have reached the country. This week, more than 50 Ukrainian troops were trained on them and more will be trained next week. That training, though, is taking place outside Ukraine. The U.S. is rushing in long-range artillery and other weapons and ammunition. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby.
16: Munitions continue to flow into Ukraine uh, that the United States is, is helping coordinate. Uh, that continues to flow in there.
23: The howitzers and other weapons are seen as critical as Kiev prepares for what's expected to be major battles with Russia in the eastern part of Ukraine. Minnesota officials say the results of a nearly two-year state investigation launched after the death of George Floyd shows Minneapolis police engaged in a pattern of racial discrimination. M.P. Cheryl Corley reports this comes days after Derek Chauvin, the officer
2: who killed Floyd, filed an appeal. Minnesota officials say they'll work with the city of Minneapolis to develop a consent decree that will mandate reforms for the police department. A separate federal investigation continues. The Department of Justice announced its probe a day after a jury convicted Derek Chauvin of the murder of George Floyd. Chauvin used his knee to pin Floyd to the ground for more than nine minutes. That incident sparked widespread protest against police brutality and racism. In an appeal filed this week, the former police officer charges that extensive Pretrial publicity, misconduct by prosecutors, and other factors prevented a fair trial. Chauvin says his conviction should be overturned or that he should be granted a new trial in a different location. Cheryl Corley, NPR News.
23: Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow was up 61 points to end at 33,301. The Nasdaq was down one point, ending the day at 12,488. The S&P 500 was up eight points to close at 4,183.
0: This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Leaders of three Massachusetts police unions are filing a legal complaint against the state commission charged with certifying police officers. The complaint says the Peace Officers Standards and Training or Post Commission is violating the state's open meeting law. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports.
8: The complaint says the commission created subcommittees that illegally did much of their work without public input or observation. It asked the court to nullify any action taken that was based on work from those subcommittees. It also asked the court to order the commission to provide records of subcommittee meetings and ensure compliance with the open meeting law. The commission issued a statement saying it's reviewing the complaint and believes it has complied with the law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: A leader of the state's response to climate change is leaving. state's Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary says she'll step down at the end of next week for another opportunity. Kathleen Theoharides has been with the Baker administration since 2016. She'll be replaced by the current Undersecretary of Environmental Policy and Climate Resilience, Beth Card. St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester is defending its decision to change the length of its nurses' shifts from 8 to 12 hours. The Massachusetts Nurses Association claims the move violates an agreement made with the hospital last year to end a nurse's strike. The hospital says its collective bargaining agreement allows the move to fewer but longer shifts and says most of its nurses and nursing applicants
7: prefer the new schedule. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research, founded by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, inviting you to the third annual National Anti-Racist Book Festival on Saturday, April 30th, to engage virtually in a full day of anti-racist dialogue that will educate, challenge, and inspire tickets at antiracistbookfest.bu.edu. In sports, Red Sox play the Blue Jays
0: in Toronto tonight. Bruins and Celtics are both off. Bruins are due back tomorrow. Celtics start the second round of the playoffs next week. In the forecast, it'll be cloudy skies to start the evening, clearing as the night goes on with lows down in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
26: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz.
9: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Wall Street has been a roller coaster lately. Stocks are in the middle of a nasty sell-off. By one estimate, the steepest sell-off we have seen since World War II. The markets were already weak because of fears of inflation. And now, add to your list two more concerns, geopolitics and earnings. NPR's David Gura is here with us now. Hey there, David.
19: Hey, Mary Louise.
9: So I'm trying to figure this out because um, we have been talking talking about inflation for a while now. Why are the markets so spooked at this moment? I mean, what do you you make of it?
19: Yeah, inflation continues to be at a 40-year high, and by now we've all seen how pernicious it is. But what's really worrying investors is how the Federal Reserve is going to bring it down. The Fed has already begun to administer medicine, started to raise interest rates a quarter of a percentage point at its last meeting. But Now there's a fear the Fed is going to have to deliver a stronger dose. Fed Chair Jerome Powell recently signaled he and his colleagues might hike rates more substantially at their next meeting next week. There could be a lot more rate hikes to come this year, but there's a big question about the size of the dosage, the effectiveness of the treatment, and if I can belabor the metaphor, the big worry is there could be an unintended side effect here. The Fed could tip the economy into a recession. Lori Cavalcina is the head of US equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets.
21: I think that the the market has wanted the Fed to fight this fight, but I do think the market is unsettled uh, by the idea of these big, chunky, uh, kind of quick increases.
19: Now, obviously, the Fed doesn't want a recession. It wants what's called a soft landing to slow down the economy just enough. But Mm. Mary Louise, markets are not convinced the Fed will be able to do that. And investors are preparing for the possibility this could lead to a substantial downturn.
9: Hmm. All right. So let me turn you to the geopolitics Mm -hmm. piece of this. There's the war in Ukraine, of course, um, sadly now entering its third month um, and and profoundly destabilizing on a number of fronts. Um, And now there are fresh concerns about China. Explain.
19: Yeah, both things are on investors' minds. And I'll start with Ukraine. The conflict has had a profound effect on energy prices and commodity prices more broadly. That's added to fears about inflation, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And then in China, those spikes we've seen in COVID cases remind us that the pandemic is still with us. But Wall Street is also worried about the consequences of massive lockdowns China has implemented because of its zero COVID policy. The global economy has been suffering because of these supply chain issues. And now, there are new fears they could linger longer as China shuts down factories and ports. Hmm.
9: So I'm thinking about investors. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about companies. Where does this leave companies, which, among other things, are trying to make a profit? How are they dealing with all these problems? they,
19: They also hate uncertainty. Companies have seen these record profits, but now there are signs that's starting to change. I mentioned supply chain issues a moment ago. Some companies are struggling with those. Others seem to have them figured out. Tesla, for example, reported record earnings, but shares of GE fell after that company said supply chain issues and inflation are weighing on its profitability. One of the biggest worries for investors right now is tech companies. They were some of the big winners during the pandemic, but recently they've been reporting earnings that have started to concern Wall Street. Netflix saw spectacular growth in recent years, but this time around it shocked investors by saying it lost subscribers in the first three months of the year. That is the first time that has happened to Netflix in a decade and the company's shares slumped. Tech is a big focus this week. Meta, Facebook's parent company, just reported revenue that was lower than Wall Street expected. I should say two more big companies are scheduled to report earnings on Thursday, Amazon and Apple.
9: And, of course, just a little bit of Twitter news just to shake things up further. (laughs) For good measure, yes. For good measure. That is NPR's David Gura. Thanks for your reporting.
19: Thank you.
10: Ice cream, butter, and yogurt sales are up in the U.S. America's dairy consumption has been rising for decades, and so has the carbon footprint. The country's dairy habit now accounts for about 2% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. A new research project from the dairy industry aims to bring that number down. Rachel Cohen from Member Station Boise State Public Radio reports.
18: It's a few weeks before Kurt Heward will plant corn to feed his company's dairy cows in southern Idaho. He jumps out of his truck to admire the soil.
34: And when I can just step on that shovel, put it down all the way in there easy, and I can pull it out without all this work...
7: This makes me happy.
18: Heward will use a no-till planter on this field, just like he's done the past few years. It drives the seeds into the ground more gently versus a tiller that digs it up about a foot deep first. Healthy soil can absorb and hold on to a lot more carbon dioxide than if it's overworked by agriculture. It also saves Heward money because it means fewer drives in his tractor.
34: If we can get across the field in one pass and get the same result, then we're winning.
18: It saves about $50 an acre, maybe even more with high fuel costs. Heward has also planted triticale as a cover crop to blanket his fields all winter, which he says prevents water and wind erosion. In a US Department of Agriculture greenhouse in Kimberly, Idaho, Abigail Baxter is researching how practices like Heward's could help the climate. She holds up a white gas chamber that looks like an upside down mixing bowl.
24: We have these little set-sized collars
30: that we put into the soil, and then that sits right on top of it.
18: Figuring out just how much carbon dioxide healthy soil can store is tricky. That's part of what Baxter's measuring when she carts the chamber around Southern Idaho farm fields. She's also comparing how fertilizers contribute to greenhouse gas emissions.
26: And then uh, when you go to take a measurement, this part of the chamber closes, then it vents it through these two analyzers to get a measurement of the different gases.
18: Cow burps and manure are the main sources of dairy's emissions, releasing lots of methane. But the dairy industry says growing crops for cows makes up about a quarter of its footprint. So if this research can prove farmers like Kurt Heward are taking more carbon from the air and keeping it in the ground, it could help the dairy industry reach its goal of greenhouse gas neutrality by 2050. Farmers could even sell so-called carbon credits to other industries, basically get paid to offset carbon dioxide pollution by maintaining healthy soils that absorb more of the gas. Kurt Heward likes that idea.
34: I thought, well, might as well jump on the, jump on the bandwagon of selling carbon credits to someone that needs them, I guess.
18: Carbon markets are still fairly new in the U.S., and the biggest ones don't currently pay for holding carbon in soil. This year, the Biden administration announced a billion-dollar climate-smart commodities program, which includes a goal of expanding carbon markets, and specifically for farmers. Kathy Day, the climate policy coordinator for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, agrees that farmers should be part of the climate change solution. But she says incentives that just focus on one component, like carbon, are not looking at the system as a whole.
30: They can help people to experiment with cover crops the first time, for
21: example, but they're not getting that longer-term change to more holistic systems that help farmers to be more resilient to climate change over the longer term.
18: Day says there are government programs that mentor farmers over several years and pay them to adopt more complex cropping systems and to integrate cows onto the landscape, which she says can help with air and water quality. There's just not enough funding for everyone who wants to take part. Groups like hers hope those initiatives get a boost in next year's Farm Bill. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Cohen.
9: Listening to all things considered from NPR News. Germany has announced it will send anti-aircraft systems to Ukraine. The decision breaks with Berlin's traditional refusal to export heavy weapons to war zones. Chancellor Olaf Schultz faces harsh criticism for inaction and is under pressure to spend more to send more weapons. But as Esme Nicholson reports, there is still angst in Germany about provoking a wider conflict with Russia.
33: Speaking after talks about Ukraine with military officials from 40 countries at the Rammstein Air Base yesterday, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin made a point of acknowledging a last minute pledge of support.
19: I wanted to especially welcome a major decision by our German host announced just today that Germany will send Ukraine some 50 Cheetah anti-aircraft systems.
33: Austin refused to speculate on what else Germany might provide, but stressed that any further decisions should be made quickly.
19: But we don't have any time to waste, so we've got to move at the speed of
33: war. In Berlin, the promise of military support is viewed as a rushed bid to save face on the global stage. On domestic television last night, Defence Minister Christina Lambrecht defaulted to Chancellor Schultz's more hesitant stance.
29: Any potential decisions to deliver more heavy weapons cannot be rushed. We must take care that we do not become a
14: party to the war.
33: But Schultz and co. are being forced to act. This week, the opposition proposed a parliamentary motion to approve the direct delivery of more weapons to Ukraine. Schultz's coalition has responded with a counter motion that still favours the so-called backfill option, in which Germany provides Ukraine with heavy weapons indirectly via Eastern European neighbours who pass on their old Soviet-era tanks in exchange for newer ones from Germany. Today, opposition leaders accepted this proposal and parliament is due to vote on it tomorrow there is criticism of this roundabout policy even from within schultz's own government most notably from the greens anton hofreiter is one of them
16: to suggest that the ukrainian military isn't skilled enough to use modern weapons is frankly paternalistic nonsense considering the heroic fight it's put up against russia so far
33: Despite announcing a sea change in German security policy just days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Schultz is under fire for failing to deliver the goods. The German Chancellor said last week that he's wary of sparking a nuclear war and announced military stocks are too depleted to spare any weapons. Many reject these arguments. Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook is a fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. He has gotten in public discourse very
31: dismissive of experts when it comes both to the discussion of a possible oil and gas
1: embargo, but also when it comes to the idea of increased military aid. It's
33: not a good look. But when it comes to public opinion, not all agree. 68-year-old Dagmar Harker from Berlin says she's impressed with Schultz's
15: level-headedness,
33: even though she didn't vote for him.
15: Sure, we need to stop this war, but pouring oil on the fire by
20: sending weapons is dangerous, considering Russia's nuclear arsenal. We need to stop talking about victory and instead negotiate a ceasefire.
33: Ultimately, though, industry often has the final say in Germany. While Schultz has caved to pressure from sectors heavily invested in Russia to dismiss prominent economists who say an immediate gas embargo is manageable, the arms industry is also driving policy by pushing the government for export permits. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin.
10: You're listening
0: to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the ethics of banning Russian players from international competitions amid the country's war in Ukraine. Also celebrating National Poetry Month with the kids competing to be the next Youth Poet Laureate. That's coming up in the next 20 minutes then tomorrow on all things considered boston singer Miranda ray coming into her own as she prepares to take the stage of the boston calling music festival next month
28: but we just made but you got something i like some kind of feeling that got me feeling so high Boy, ray
0: is the next artist you. in our series on rising local musicians back. called sound on Hear from her tomorrow on that all
15: things considered
28: but you got I'm feeling
33: so free
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel & Haydn Society, with Haydn's The Creation, Harry Christopher's final concerts as artistic director, Friday and Sunday, handleandhaydn.org, and Mass General Brigham, inviting you to explore the disruptive dozen, 12 innovative ways gene and cell therapies are transforming healthcare. At the World Medical Innovation Forum, May 2nd through 4th, meet the leaders who are creating a new era in modern medicine. With presenting sponsors Bank of America, worldmedicalinnovation.org.
0: In sports, Red Sox will play the Blue Jays in Toronto tonight. Bruins and Celtics are both off. Forecast says we'll see mostly cloudy skies to start the evening, but it will clear as the night goes on with overnight lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, all sunshine at a few degrees cooler, highs in the low to mid-50s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston at 549.
15: WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership.
2: It's an urban farm, it's an urban greenhouse, and this is an urban problem. Around New England, people are fighting climate change by eating and growing food sustainably. What we expect as a result of climate change is extreme precipitation. And as
12: long as we route it, store it, save it, then it can turn into extreme food. So both of our neighbors
2: get a lot of veggies from here. To learn what you can do, sign up for our newsletter, Cooked. Go to wbur.org cooked.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Wimbledon,
10: the oldest and most prestigious tennis Grand Slam major, has barred Russian and Belarusian tennis players from participating in this year's tournament because of the invasion of Ukraine. The sports world has been taken aback by the All England Club's decision. The ramifications are huge for tennis. Several top players, including men's player Daniil Medvedev, Andrei Rublev, and women's player Arina Sabalenka, have been banned from the tournament. Our next guest, one of the greatest tennis players of all time, is nine-time Wimbledon singles champion Martina Navratilova. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. The men's world number one player, Novak Djokovic, has criticized the All-England Club's decision, as have you. Tell us why you think this decision was a bad idea.
12: Uh, On an individual level, I just think it's... um... It's a step in the wrong direction because you're punishing individuals for being from a particular country where they had nothing to do with uh, the country's policy. Yeah, I just don't think this solves anything. It just adds kind of uh, more negativity to the whole situation as bad as it is. I I understand where the Ukrainian players are coming from. They don't want to play against Belarusian or Russian players, Um, but maybe the Russian players. You know, they've actually spoken out against the war at some potential personal cost, uh, but that doesn't seem to matter. So it's just, I think it's an overreach and I think it's not um, helpful.
10: It should be noted here that neither the French Open, which starts in a few weeks, nor the U.S. Tennis Association seems to be planning a similar ban. Why do you think the All England Club made this decision?
12: Uh, I am not sure where it started. I've, I've heard some rumblings that it was more political than anything else, uh, but I don't have the facts. So this is just kind of innuendo or rumors. But uh, I just find it kind of hypocritical for, for some of the people involved uh, that they now find a moral compass uh, where they were doing business with uh, Putin's uh, Russia for decades. And only pulled out a couple of weeks ago. Um, right. So it's like really, <laughs> and 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 for the Russian players and the Belarusian players even more so. Uh, you know they're they're getting defaulted by proxy or or banned by proxy. And it, imagine if the whole tennis world did that, they would only have one choice, which would be to leave their country. Right. I went through that in 1975, and I don't wish that on my worst enemy.
10: Yeah. And your opinion on this matter is given even more weight, I think, because you grew up in the former Czechoslovakia behind the Iron Curtain. And at the age of 18, you requested and were granted political asylum in the United States. How does your personal experience impact your insight into this?
12: Well, it's, it's, it's obviously massive because when I defected in uh, 75, it was a one-way ticket. I did not know if I would ever see my family again or how long it would be when I would see them. Just making a phone call was it was an adventure so i spoke to them maybe once every two three weeks um and i did not see my mom for four years i did not see my dad and my sister for five years um and it was 11 years before i was able to go back to compete in the fed, fed cup which is now the village king cup which is a, um, a competition between teams uh and and then we played Czech, czechoslovakia in the finals and and the people were ended up cheering for us more than than the Czechs because it was all a political statement. Basically, I stuck it to the communist regime by leaving and succeeding, Uh, but it was a one-way ticket. So I lost all that time with my family that I could never get back and it was brutal.
10: It's interesting this year in tennis, we've had sort of political controversy after controversy. We've had uh, the Djokovic uh, vaccination issue. We've had the WTA deciding not to play in China. What do you think of of how this has just all sort of come down in the matter of months?
12: Uh, Well, it's funny. Again, sports and politics, whether they want to be intertwined or not, they are, which is why a lot of these countries that have kind of questionable human rights uh, record, like China, like Qatar, like Russia, like UAE, or Saudi Arabia are getting the Formula One races, uh, China getting Olympics twice, um, Russia getting the World Cup. Qatar getting the World Cup, they get validated by having those events. And how you treat your athletes, um, you know, makes a difference. Politics and sports are intertwined. Um, That's why it's just so heartbreaking that athletes that are trying to
10: do the right thing are still penalized. Martina and thanks so much for your time.
9: Thank you. All this month, we are meeting the four finalists for this year's National Youth Poet Laureate. Today, we have the West Regional Ambassador.
35: I'm Jessica Kim, and I am the 2021 Los Angeles Youth Poet Laureate. I just turned 18 and I live in Los Angeles, California. I'm a visually impaired Korean American writer. I first started writing poetry when the pandemic first hit. It was a sort of survival mechanism in a fragile, fearful, and sometimes frustrating world. And by moving around a lot and being visually impaired, I felt excluded from my communities and suffered in silence for a long time. But when I started writing, especially about my vulnerable identities, I was drawn to the autonomy of having control over my story and haven't stopped writing since then. Broken abecedarian for America. In the abecedarian, each line goes in alphabetical order from A to Z, so there would typically be 26 lines. But in my poem, I kind of played with the idea of breaking the abecedarian, so my poem is a 52-line piece with each alternating line going from ABCD. America doesn't have a body just the rupture from a pistol broken like a mother's backbone. One night, I returned home to find her collapsing into her own tongue, a secondhand language she bought for a dollar. I love breaking traditional forms, and I really wanted to portray the brokenness of American society by breaking that form. I think the fragility around American society, especially as a Korean American immigrant, as someone who's really uncertain of living their daily lives as an American, but also not as an American um, kind of really intrigued me. So I was playing with that idea, that dichotomy of being so uncertain and fragile in America. At home, a mother afraid of school shootings says, be careful as if I am not already full tight stomach, pulling my body closer to hers because it's the only unhardened object within reach. Unlike America, I inhabit a body I wish to vacate and I know this isn't the answer she is searching for. I am defeated again when the syllables of the American dream vibrate like bombs ticking, ready to burst in the end I want people to take away from my poems that I'm in for a revolution and I'm going to change the world in my own small ways, one step at a time.
9: That's Jessica Kim, finalist for 2022 National Youth Poet Laureate.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from X Chair, maker of XT massage chairs. At home or in the office, XChair offers dynamic variable lumbar support, as well as LMAX heating, cooling, and massage technology at xchair.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at progressivecommercial.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Franny Carr Toth, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Russia's state-run gas company cuts deliveries to Poland and Bulgaria as Russia tries to ramp up pressure on the West over sanctions. It's Wednesday, April 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiarz, in for Lisa Mullins, coming off the move by Gazprom and how Poland and Bulgaria are responding.
12: Everyone in Europe is actually preparing for disruption in Russian gas flows. The key issue here is to stay united.
0: Also this hour, Texas families with trans kids move out of the state as the government there says gender-affirming care for those kids amounts to child abuse. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, a new report showing teachers' salaries aren't keeping up with inflation. It's 6.01. First, this hour's news.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas testified before Congress today defending the administration's plans to lift pandemic border restrictions. NPR's Joel Rose reports Mayorkas was grilled by Republicans about the rising number of unauthorized crossings at the border.
32: At a contentious hearing of the House Homeland Security Committee, Secretary Mayorkas tried to explain that pandemic-era restrictions artificially inflated border statistics by encouraging migrants to cross more than once.
6: We're seeing a great deal of recidivism, so the same individual will try again to enter the United States.
32: Mayorkas insisted the border is secure, but Republicans on the committee weren't buying it. Here's Representative Michael Guest of Mississippi. Mr. Secretary, you have repeatedly lied. You've lied to Congress, and you've lied to the American people. Representative Clay Higgins of Louisiana threatened that Mayorkas would face impeachment next year if Republicans take control of the House. Joel Rose, NPR News.
25: A UN humanitarian team says it is seeking to work out a plan to put together a team to evacuate a besieged steel plant in Mariupol. The plan reported to be carried out with the International Committee of the Red Cross to try to get civilians out of that facility, which has been targeted by Russia during its invasion of Ukraine. It's reported Russian President Vladimir Putin has agreed in principle to the evacuation. The State Department of Human Rights in Minnesota has released a scathing report accusing the Minneapolis Police Department of a pattern of racism. Morph from NPR's Martin Costi. The investigation, started soon after the murder of George Floyd, found that Minneapolis
19: police stop and use force against black people more often than whites in similar situations. Minnesota Human Rights Commissioner Rebecca Lucero blames the department's culture.
2: MPD maintains an organizational culture where officers consistently use racist, misogynistic, and disrespectful language. Furthermore,
29: MPD does not
30: uniformly and consistently hold officers accountable for using this language.
19: Lucero wants to negotiate with the city to create a state court monitored consent decree plan to reform the department. Minneapolis is still waiting for results of another investigation by the Department of Justice, which could
25: lead to a federal consent decree. Martin Kosty, NPR News. New York's congressional lines will need to be redrawn after the state's highest court ruled they were gerrymandered to benefit Democrats. Von Golden from member station WSKG reports. The decision is a blow for
34: Democrats who could have picked up three new seats under their lines. In a split decision, the state's highest court found the districts were not competitive and were drawn to benefit Democrats. A neutral expert will now redraw the maps under the supervision of a lower court judge. Primary elections scheduled for June could be delayed by two months as the state restarts the election process. For NPR News, I'm Vaughn Golden in upstate New York.
25: The Dow is up 61 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The Massachusetts House has rejected some proposals to promote clean energy through the state budget. Lawmakers voted down a plan to create a $250 million fund to retrofit buildings with clean energy technologies. They also killed amendments that would have given cities and towns the option to ban fossil fuels from new building construction. A state representative from Worcester is due back in court in June to face drunk driving charges. David LaBeouf was arrested in Quincy last night. Police say he was driving erratically failed field sobriety tests and had a blood alcohol level about four times the legal limit. The arrest happened about 90 minutes after the House wrapped up debate for the night on the state budget. A memorial to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King is going up on Boston Common. Crews held a groundbreaking ceremony today for the installation called Embrace. It's meant to be a symbol of love, equity, inclusion and justice. Dr. King and Coretta Scott King met in Boston. An exhibit in Milton focuses on a complicated and sometimes not well-understood period in Boston's history, the 19th century opium trade. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports.
24: Opium, the business of addiction, is at the Forbes House Museum, a mansion built in 1833 with profits from the sale of opium to the Chinese. Museum director Heidi Vaughn says the exhibit looks at the roots of that trade and its continued effect on addiction, international relations, and the Boston institutions it funded.
11: There's lots of interesting subjects that are very relevant to our lives today, so we tried to explore all of these, and we hope that we'll get a lot of people thinking about them and discussing them long after they leave our exhibition.
24: The exhibit opens today at the Forbes House Museum in Milton and runs through next March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: In sports, Red Sox play the Blue Jays in Toronto tonight. Bruins and Celtics are off in the forecast. Mostly cloudy to start tonight, then clearing with lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, all sunshine and a few degrees cooler with highs in the low to mid-50s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Vital Projects Fund, supporting the Museum of Modern Art, where Matisse, the Red Studio, unites the art and objects in this landmark painting. Opens May 1st with members' previews April 28th through 30th. MoMA.org.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Rob Schmitz. Much of Europe's natural gas comes from fields in Siberia, traveling thousands of miles across Russia in pipelines. But now Russia's state-run gas company, Gazprom, has cut supplies to two countries in Eastern Europe, Poland and Bulgaria. At the heart of this move, the war in Ukraine, the sanctions imposed by the West, and Russia's attempts to try and wriggle free of them. We're joined by two correspondents who have been following all of this closely for months now, from Lviv in Ukraine and PR's Joanna Kakisis, and from Moscow and PR's Charles Maines. Welcome to you both. Hi there. Hi, Rob. Uh, Charles, we'll start with you. Why has Gazprom done this?
6: Well, last month, uh, President Vladimir Putin ordered countries deemed unfriendly to Moscow to shift their payments to rubles. Uh, It was payback, really, for the sanctions they've imposed on Russia over its actions in Ukraine. And Gazprom is, in effect, implementing Putin's orders. You know, another issue, though, is what the move to ruble payments actually accomplishes. You know, the median intent seemed to be to pump up the value of the currency, the ruble. Uh, But I spoke with Sergei Pekin from the Energy Development Fund here in Moscow, and he argues the other objective uh, was to protect Gazprom's revenues from Western sanctions. Let's listen in. So the goal, Pekin says, was to ensure payments to Gazprom went to banks under Russian jurisdiction, so the money wouldn't be subject to seizure. Simple as that. Now, now the problem is, these contracts are in euros and dollars, so Pekin says Gazprom worked out a compromise of sorts. You know, Europe can pay in euros to, say, Gazprom's own banks, Gazprom transfers the payments into rubles, and that pleases the Kremlin. But, of course, that only applies to those who decide to play ball, which, of course, Poland and Bulgaria refused.
10: Aha. So, let's pivot to Joanna. Why did these countries refuse?
11: Both Poland and Bulgaria don't want to accommodate a country that has started an unprovoked war against a sovereign nation, uh, Ukraine. Um, They are also challenging the Russian stoppage. They say Gazprom can't change the terms of, of, of contracts that were signed years ago. Uh, but both the Polish and Bulgarian governments say they are also prepared to go without Russian fuel. They've assured their citizens that everything will be fine, that the countries have alternative fuel sources, as well as fuel in storage and access to the EU energy market. I spoke about all this with Polish energy analyst Agata Woskot strakota uh, She says Poland and Bulgaria are sounding the alarm about Gazprom.
12: Unfortunately, Russia will be playing its games with gas supplies to Europe and we cannot really avoid that. Everyone in Europe is actually preparing for disruption in Russian
11: gas flows. And the key issue here is to stay united. And she says Russia is trying to divide the EU by using energy as a weapon.
10: So Charles, this has long been a fear that Russia would cut supplies to Europe. But isn't this a risky move on the part of the Russian government?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, keep in mind that throughout the late Soviet period, at the height of the Cold War, you know, Europe and Moscow managed to have a pretty good business relationship with gas, uh, despite all the political tensions. And, you know, Putin, when he came to power, essentially followed that pattern. Uh, Not always so convincingly, though, I think, to a lot of people. You know, today's decision, it certainly gives ammunition, as Joanna's pointing out, to these voices in Europe who've long argued that their reliance on Russian oil and gas uh, undermines their security and leaves, you know, EU countries open to Russian blackmail. You know to them, it looks political because it is political. You know, today we heard it from the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, who said that that's not the case. Uh, he says that, you know, essentially for those European countries who are willing to pay in rubles, uh, and there are some who are seem to indicate that they are willing, that it's business as usual. This is hmm. essentially nothing's changed. Um, but of course, a lot of Europeans aren't you know, blind to the optics of giving Putin what he wants. Um, now, the problem is what happens if uh, Europe doesn't want to pay gas? Uh, you know, Russia says it'll take its gas elsewhere to buyers like China or India. But the hard truth is that you can't just redirect these supplies. I and mean, they're literally physical pipelines connecting these countries together. And moving away from that is going to take time.
10: Hmm. Joanna, does this mean that the lights are going to go off in Poland and Bulgaria?
11: nope the lights are going to stay on at least for now Uh, (laughs) yes it's spring so you know you don't need to burn uh, fuel to keep people warm right uh that's a big plus um and it will be warm for the next few months so there is some breathing room um but in the long term you know bulgaria is in in the more precarious position it's a small country it's not very rich much of its fuel until now came from russia Hmm. Um, bulgaria has some options including importing gas from neighboring countries like turkey or greece greece has already offered actually to to export gas to Bulgaria Poland meanwhile has been moving for years to cut itself from from Russian fuel imports earlier this month the Polish government declared that it was phasing out all Russian imports by the end of the year Uh, and they're looking to the US to Qatar and to Norway to fill uh, the gap to fill uh, to for new fuel resources
10: so Joanna it looks like Poland is trying to figure things out but EU-wide what are the alternatives
11: Well, you know, the the EU has been thinking about life after Gazprom for some time. There's a plan to drastically cut Russian gas imports by 2030. Uh, In the short term, though, you know, LNG, liquefied natural gas, is an option. Those supplies are limited. There's also coal, uh, and and that's another short-term solution because it's very unpopular with environmentalists, and the EU is trying to cut its carbon emissions. And I talked this all over with Julian Popov, who's a former environment minister from Bulgaria, and he sees this crisis as an opportunity to speed up getting renewable energy sources online, finally, at the EU. Um, And he says that this is going to take a while. So in the meantime, expect pain, because this is a war, an energy war with Moscow, and that the EU must accept that.
10: Aha, so expect pain. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis and Charles Maines. Thanks to you
9: both. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Rob. Okay, staying with developments from Russia, let's turn to this one. Today, at an airport in Turkey, a Russian plane pulled up next to an American one. From each plane, a prisoner emerged and walked across to the other. The U.S. returned to Russia a pilot, convicted of drug smuggling charges, sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. Russia returned to the U.S. 30-year-old former Marine Trevor Reed, who was serving time for assaulting a police officer. He has maintained his innocence. And this was a remarkable prisoner swap uh, for any moment, but especially during this time of war in Ukraine. With us now, U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price. Hey, Ned.
13: Hey, Mary Louise. Thanks for having me. Um,
9: The U.S. has been trying to get Trevor Reed home the whole time he's been detained there, nearly three years. What was the breakthrough?
13: Well, I can only speak to this administration and the release of Trevor Reed and the return of him to his family has been a top priority ever since we came into office uh, in January of last year. And today, once again, we made good on our commitment to bring home an American who's detained unjustly uh, around the world. We've done that in places like Haiti and Burma and Afghanistan and Venezuela and now, today, Russia. And so the news we uh, received and confirmed this morning was really the result of months of concerted effort across this department on the part of our special envoy for hostage affairs, Roger Karstens and his team, uh, on the part of the White House and the part of our embassy in Moscow right. and our ambassador, John Sullivan, uh, and many others uh, across this uh, government. And we- again, can
9: you, share, can you share any details in terms of, of what it was that broke the logjam?
13: Well, again, this was the result of of months of discussions with uh, the Russians. The president uh, ultimately had to make a very tough decision, but he made the decision to bring home an American who's, health was a concern of ours. It was, it was a source of intense concern. And he made uh, the, uh, the decision to deliver on that very commitment to resolve these cases and to reunite Americans with their uh, loved ones. Um, and so what couple- I can tell you right now is that Trevor Reed is on a plane on his way home. He's accompanied by our special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. Uh, and he'll be back in the United States uh, later today.
9: And what is his health condition? How's he doing?
13: Well, he's in good spirits. Uh, As you might imagine, he's relieved. Uh, He was able to speak to his family uh, as soon as he boarded the plane. I know that he's looking forward to speaking to them. Uh, I think, uh, as you saw, uh, he was able to uh, walk himself onto the plane, and he'll receive the care he needs uh, when he lands in the United States.
14: You
9: described this as a tough decision for the president, um, and I'm curious why. Was The sense was that uh, the U.S. would have liked a better deal, would have liked Russia to release more Americans?
13: Well, of course, we're always trying to uh, see the release of Americans who are unjustly detained. And there is another American who's unjustly detained uh, in Russia, Paul Whelan. Uh, We're working tirelessly on his case. Uh, We're working tirelessly to support Brittany Griner, other Americans who uh, are detained in Russia and and elsewhere around the world. Uh, Ultimately, this was a decision that was predicated on the fact uh, that, again, uh, this is someone who had been unjustly detained for nearly two years, whose health was in poor... Nearly three if condition, I'm not uh, right for right. for more than mm-hmm. two years, mm-hmm. whose health mm-hmm. was in uh, poor condition, and ultimately uh, the president did make the decision to commute the sentence of a of a Russian smuggler uh, who had served the majority of his sentence yeah. for a nonviolent. Uh, drug crime. He commuted it, and that that in no way diminishes uh, the import of the finding uh, of his guilt.
9: Since you brought up the other Americans being detained in Russia, Paul Whelan, and I heard you say the U.S. is working tirelessly to get him out because he's being unjustly held. You also mentioned WNBA star Brittany Greiner. Um, Secretary Blinken did not mention her in his statement. Is the U.S. view that she is also being unjustly held in Russia?
13: Well, Mary Louise, each case is unique, uh, and in the case of Brittany Greiner, uh, it is distinct from Paul Whelan. It's distinct from the from the case of Trevor Reed, uh, really from any other case. Uh, Brittany Griner is a case we've been working on ever since uh, we learned of her detention earlier this year. Uh, we've been working through our embassy in Moscow to secure consular access. A member of our embassy team was able to visit with her recently. We're continuing to press the Russian government for consistent access to her so that we can check on her condition. Uh, we do understand she's been uh, consistently able to see uh, her legal team, but we in turn. So the US uh, are is working contact.
9: is working to support her, but you're not going to wade into the waters of whether the U.S. believes she's being unjustly held.
13: Absolutely working to support her. We're in regular contact with her legal representation, with her broader network as well uh, to provide her with what she needs. Okay,
9: uh, just very briefly, does this signal any softening in the relationship? Any goodwill?
13: Uh, I wouldn't say that at all. Uh, This was about one thing and one thing only. It was the release uh, of Trevor Reed. Uh, As I said before, this was a deal that was orchestrated by our special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. That's the key word in his title, hostage. Uh, And that's what this was about.
9: We've been talking with Ned Price, spokesman for the State Department. Thank you. Thank you. And you're listening to All Things Considered.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the staffing crisis for adult care centers around the country. That story and more coming up here on WBUR.
15: WBUR supporters include Zevin Asset Management, working to align investments with values like economic justice, human rights, and climate action. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Mass Audubon explore nature on May 13th and 14th, look for birds and make an impact during Birdathon. More at massaudubon.org/birdathon.
0: In business news, the Boston Scientific Corporation is reporting better than expected earnings for the first quarter. The Marlborough-based company says its adjusted earnings worked out to 39 cents per share, about a penny above analyst expectations. Total revenue was a little more than 3 billion dollars. On Wall Street, a little change for the markets today. Dow was up 61 points at 33,301. NASDAQ fell a point to 12,488. And the S&P 500 rose 8 points to end the day at 4,183. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 6.19.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com and the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander and pianist Alexander Corsantia in a benefit for Ukraine. May 6th at Symphony Hall, bostonphil.org.
0: Remember, coming to City Space on Friday, April 29th, Boston Poet Laureate Portia Wola MCs an evening of poetry readings from Boston's up-and-coming poets. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, it'll be cloudy skies to start this evening. Clear as the night goes on with lows down in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs should be in the lower 50s. Right now, 51 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
15: WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham, believing that sometimes something comes along and changes everything. Gene and cell therapies are transforming healthcare. Join scientists, doctors, investors, and entrepreneurs at the World Medical Innovation Forum, May 2nd to 4th in Boston, with presenting sponsor Bank of America, worldmedicalinnovation.org.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz
15: and i'm mary
9: louise kelly when there's a huge line at your local coffee shop because maybe they're short-staffed It can be annoying. Our next guest argues that for his industry, staff shortages are more than an annoyance. They can be life-threatening. Christopher White is CEO of Road to Responsibility. That is a Massachusetts company that provides care and services for adults with disabilities. They are struggling to find workers because they can't match the starting wage being offered by other businesses, businesses like Target, say, or Bank of America. Christopher White, welcome to All Things Considered.
3: Thanks for having me, Mary Louise.
9: Um, just in a sentence or two, would you tell me a little bit more about the people you are serving? Who who comes to a company like Road to Responsibility?
3: So sure. We serve adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including autism and acquired brain injuries. They are as young as 22 and our oldest person that we support is, I believe, 97.
9: Oh, OK, so quite a range. And when you say you're short staffed, how short staffed? What's the gap?
3: Uh, we have 260 vacant positions right now, wow. which represents about 27% of our total workforce.
9: What is your understanding of why? Why can't you hire oh,
3: these people? It's, to keep it really simple, there's three big factors. There's uh, demographics that COVID drove a lot of boomers to retire a lot sooner than was predicted. Mm. A vast immigrant population has for many years been a band-aid for human service staffing woes uh, that's really no longer available. And the big one though is just the pay rates. The employment market has changed radically in the I guess we're in a sort of post-COVID world right
9: now yeah the transitioning out of COVID world yeah Yeah. how big is the gap I said you can't match wages being offered elsewhere
3: the state contracts we have will support entry-level wages of between $15 an hour and $16.79 an hour for our direct care staff We increased that rate using one-time dollars this year to $17 an hour, and thankfully that plus generous recruitment and retention bonuses stopped the hemorrhaging of staff leaving the workforce, but it hasn't really allowed us to gain any ground, Uh, whereas people can go down the street and work for Dunkin' Donuts for $18 an hour. We can't compete with it.
9: What does it mean to be trying to run a company and have 27% fewer staff than you need to be fully staffed? What are the consequences of that? Like, what isn't getting done?
3: Well, we're getting things done, but quality isn't what it was, and people are exhausted. You know, I've got staff who are routinely working 100 hours a week.
9: 100 hours a week? Yep. Routinely? routinely huh.
3: you know so when people are working that much and are tired mistakes get made and again we're not alone this is happening everywhere
9: it sounds like you're dealing with a really vulnerable population and what you're saying is uh, there there are delays in their in their care and their treatments that they need
3: Yeah. And for many people, it means they're not getting services at all. People that were participating in our day services, either employment or a therapeutic day service for people who are more medically compromised and older, we've only been able to get about 60% of the people we were serving pre-COVID back into service. And the folks that we have been able to get back into service, we've seen really major declines in their skills and abilities because they haven't been getting the support they need.
9: Christopher White, thank you. Thank you. He is CEO of Road to Responsibility in Massachusetts. And we called the Massachusetts Executive Office of Health and Human Services to allow them to respond. We have not heard back
10: some texas families with trans kids are leaving or are considering leaving the state that's because texas governor greg abbott called parents who get their kids gender-affirming care child abusers and said they should be investigated houston public media's sarah willa ernst reports these families don't see a future in texas
16: not about the bugs
17: mom dad and the kids are huddled in their tv room in austin Eyes are glued to a video game. The dad, Brian, is managing the controller, but it's his kids who are the real brains of the operation.
5: Oh, battle! Then
17: you have a battle battle. Brian and his wife, Susan, are the parents of five-year-old twins, including a transgender girl, who started expressing gender variance at age two.
18: Well, well, I think I like spirit tracks better. Their daughter has grown
17: out her hair and changed her pronouns. She isn't old enough for puberty blockers, but Brian and Susan are still worried about getting reported to Child Protective Services, which is why they ask we only use their first names.
19: I don't want to leave. On the other hand, if we had to, I know we'd be okay.
20: Yeah, it's just kind of crummy.
17: Only in recent months, conversations about leaving Austin have become plans. That change happened in February when the governor and AG started calling gender-affirming care child abuse. My worst fear had come true with no warning and no time buffer or anything. Fear describes most of the past year for Susan and Brian. They followed bills in the legislature that sought to criminalize gender-affirming care. Those ultimately failed, which led to the governor's directive months later. An injunction currently puts these investigations on hold, but Susan isn't hopeful. I just can't picture a situation in which this doesn't get worse. Susan and Brian, who both work in education, are looking for jobs in states with stronger civil rights protections for trans people. It never
18: crossed my mind that we would go anywhere else, but I can't, I can't do
17: that anymore. So now, they're preparing to say goodbye to Texas.
15: I can't think ahead to a time when my kids are older. I can't imagine buying a home. I don't even feel comfortable taking a
17: job here. Susan's heartbroken to leave her sister and the kid's grandparents. Moving elsewhere is on the table for many others, says Shelly Skeen, with the LGBTQ rights group Lambda Legal.
22: I really can't think of any parent that I've talked to that hasn't considered this.
17: But not all the 50 families her group is working with have the means to relocate.
22: takes a pretty big toll on a family because you're taking your kids out of school and you're bringing them to a completely different place. You've got to maintain an apartment. People just can't do that.
17: I definitely don't feel like I'm on the other side of it. (laughs) I wish. Rachel, her husband, and their three kids are from North Texas. She and the kids have just moved to Colorado. That's because one of the children is non-binary, and another is a trans teenager on hormone therapy, the kind of treatment the governor is targeting. And because of that, Rachel asked we only use her first name as well. This time has been like a slow unraveling of stress. They're staying with family until they find a house. Her husband, who works in IT, is still back in Texas until he can relocate. We still have so many things that are in transition, just feeling really paranoid about, you know, any connections that we have and how those could bite us. The difficulty of letting go is balanced by the welcome she feels in Colorado, such as gender-inclusive bathrooms at the school she's considering for her kids. She believes that now, her family has a real shot at happy, healthy lives. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Willa-Ernst in Houston.
9: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Online at WBUR.org. Coming up next on Marketplace, Russia's move to shut off natural gas deliveries to parts of Europe. Also, teachers' salaries are rising, but not keeping pace with inflation. What that means for education, coming up next here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy to start tonight, then clearing with lows dropping to the upper 30s. Right now,
7: 51 degrees. In Boston, this is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. And the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research, founded by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, inviting you to the third annual National Anti-Racist Book Festival on Saturday, April 30th, to engage virtually in a full day of anti-racist dialogue that will educate, challenge, and inspire. Tickets at antiracistbookfest.bu.edu.